Welcome to the weekend, folks. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila and super producer Kale Brooks, who will join us later for your super chat questions. So please make sure to actually ask us some super chat, uh, super chat yes. questions that we can get to later. Nando, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm feeling fresh. I got a fresh haircut after it was getting really long and unwieldy um, and very difficult <laughs> to manage. So now I'm feeling fresh. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling light, limber, ready to take on the weekend. And me ready to take it. on the news with you. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, speaking of haircuts, this pandemic has made me um, an expert at giving men fades. So uh, if you see my husband with a slick fade, I did it. Well, it's yeah, bro. Like he's like from Miami, like me. And like, you got to have a sick fade. You got to have it like tight. You know, like it has to be like, it has to be like, it has to go like in the same direction. You know, you can't like, you can't have like no layers. <laughs> totally. That's how totally. Miami like, people talk. I've done it so well and I still like have to prove myself to him because as I'm doing it, like he's trying to give me instructions. I'm like, wait, are you the expert or am I the expert? Because I've actually done this yeah. several times. Um, but yeah, one time I did mess up though by lining up the back of his head by cutting two or shaving too far into his ha- hairline. So it was as it was Ooh. growing out, it it was a disaster. So I will give him that criticism, but that was early on in the pandemic. Since then, I've right. gotten very, very, very good at it. Um, wow. But anyway, so uh, some bad news this morning. Um, you know, I thought we would just quickly talk about it in our um, banter for the show open. Um, Mr. King has, uh, why am I forgetting his first name right now? Jesus. Larry King. <laughs> Larry King. Wow. Okay. Larry King. Yes. I'm like, wait, what was his first name? Larry King has passed away. Um, And yeah, I mean, it was reported a few weeks ago that he had contracted COVID and he was getting um, treatment in an ICU, but then it looked like things had improved and he had left the ICU. And then it was reported today that he um, had passed away. So, uh, you know, he was the king of interviews and he would go in blind. He admitted that he loved to go into interviews completely blind And somehow that worked out for him. <laughs> well, I actually, you know, I, I actually kind of, I, I think that that interview tactic is 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 better than over-preparing. I'd rather under-prepare than over-prepare. I think sometimes people go into an interview over-prepared and they want to cram a lot of stuff into a question. And and really that's not, that's not, the, 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 the toughest questions aren't those. The toughest questions are simple kind of very broad questions that really trip up um, an interview subject. I mean, that was like, uh, I mean, Bourdain, right? Like his thing is always like his, his go-to question is like, what makes you happy? You know, like, and think about, Mm -hmm. think about trying to answer that rather than like, you know, in 2012, you said in a congressional hearing that blah, 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 you know, like, and then they're just like, they're just going to pivot. So I kind of like the, just going blind and just shoot the shit with someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned Anthony Bourdain's method. I think we should do that with every guest we have. Yeah. That should be the opening question. What makes you happy? Um, makes you happy? And then just go from there. Yeah. And I agree with you. It, I don't like over-preparing. I, I over-prepare by reading as much as possible and, and having an idea of where I want the conversation to go. Um, and the reading, it, it, like, it gives you necessary context so you know how to maybe challenge the guest if they're saying something misleading or whatever it is. Um, but I do think that when you over-prepare, what ends up happening is you don't have like this healthy and organic flow to the conversation. You're more, you're more 
like determined to get to the questions that you have prepared. I think TV producers do that all the time. Like they just have pre-prepared questions. And I remember doing a TV show once where the producer's in my ear and I want to ask a follow-up question. Right. To what the guest is saying. No, no, this question. Yeah. Yeah. It's because they prepared the question. So you have to get to it. You know, that that's, that's, you know, Larry King always talked about like, he's like, I want to hear from what they have to say. Like, I I don't want to be the the star of the interview or whatever. You know, like I think that CNN people, um, they they want to make themselves the star, right? Like Don Lemon or like, you know, Jake Tapper. They want to show off constantly how prepared they are, how smart they are, how, you know, tough they are. And they want to make themselves the star. And Larry King was always just like, hey, what's up? What are you up to? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. What's, yeah. What's, what's good with your life? <laughs> you know? And then uh, ironically, that made him kind of an icon at the same time. Yeah, he was incredibly good at what he did. And, um, you know, this pandemic has been so disastrous for um, so many legends that I grew up with, so many icons that I grew up with. And, you know, when when these things happen, I can't help but think about how I'm not like, I want, I don't know how to phrase this appropriately, but you see like your youth slipping away, right? Like your childhood (laughs) and the things, the parts of your childhood that made you who you are. Like you see that kind of stuff slipping away and it's weird. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm articulating. I know you mean like, like Larry King, I know you mean like Larry King was like, just kind of like a omnipresent figure in the nineties when we grew up. Right. And it was just like, he was the, and now he's dead and now he's gone. And so that means that time has passed and that means that we're getting older. And, uh, yeah, you know, also there's just like, I don't know. He, I mean, like he's, I mean, I'm not saying he was like some like radical socialist or something, but he was like a likable dude. Um, and, and, and he seemed like a genuinely good guy. And the fact that he was just kind of this omnipresent figure, um, in a, in a certain era, just does does feel like we're we're losing we're losing something and we're I mean I don't know like it, I know what you mean that it's just like we're getting older and we're losing some of the people that were just part of our zeitgeist I mean Hank Aaron also died this week um, think about that mm-hmm. I mean that I mean that he was just kind of couldn't be more iconic in in the sports world so yeah it's it's sad it feels like getting older and time passing and and you know death is ever closer. <laughs> I know, I know. It's uh, it definitely forces you to come to terms with your own um, mortality, <laughs> and that's uh, that's like a transitional phase that I think a lot of people go through in like their late twenties, early thirties. So, um, it's, what a time to be alive! Um, but anyway, so uh, we have a fantastic show ahead for you guys. By the way, uh, we have a pre-taped interview with uh, Richard Wolf, uh, but after the interview, uh, we're going to stick around so we can um, do our salt segment. Uh, and uh, the Jacobin cover, the cover art for the latest uh, edition, is getting Beautiful. a lot of attention from people who don't understand satire, including Tim Pool. So we'll talk about that in greater detail. Um, and Nando is going to fill you guys in on the Hunts Point strike, worker strike. I'm really looking forward to that segment. And um, I'll do my decode today a little bit on an issue that's been um, you know, top of mind for a lot of people, uh, the security state, the surveillance state, and uh, what's been cooking behind the scenes when we haven't really been paying attention. Um, and before I get to that, do we have anything that we need to promote or or plug, Nando, or should we just get well, right to the show? Well, we we have some books to promote. We have a, a book publisher to promote. That book book publisher is Verso Books, 
You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to four books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for ebooks only, and the comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in January, you'll get How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire by Andreas Malm, The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It by Emma Dowling, Capitalism and the Sea, The Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World by Leon Campling and Alejandro Colas, and Lessons on Rousseau by Louis Althusser. I still don't know how to pronounce that. Kale, Kale knows how to pronounce it, producer Kale, and he says that he'll never he'll never tell me how you properly pronounce it. And that makes me that makes me a bad lefty. I don't believe to not you. Know how to pronounce I don't that believe name. you. Kale would never say that. Kale he would like go out of that. his way to Kale, come on the he show. He did? Come on, come on the show. He said that. Kale, come on the show. Yeah, I guess yeah, I guess I just here. have a different relationship you with did Kale say that because he's always yeah. helpful. He's always helpful to me. No, he told me that. He's know. like, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna tell you how you how you actually pronounce it. So Turns out I'm Kale's favorite. Not a big deal. That's that's what I'm getting from this conversation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> All clearly. <right>. Well, <laughs> well, let's uh, let's get to something that you and I touched on uh, two weeks ago, which is um, you know some concerns about civil liberties and uh, how they could be violated by an incoming uh, Biden uh, presidency. Now that he is president, it's pretty clear that he is in fact planning on. Um, doing something about domestic terrorism and domestic extremism, and that could mean um, some losses for regular people like us. So let's discuss. President Joe Biden, like many in the country, is concerned about violent extremists, uh, right-wing gangs, militias, you know, the type of people who decided to storm the Capitol and engage in riots uh, when Congress was supposed to be certifying electoral votes for Joe Biden. Now, there's some concern that Biden is going to focus the security state on uh, rooting out violent extremists in the country. And, uh, well, the press secretary for the Biden White House has clarified that that is, in fact, the case. They are going to rely heavily on gathering intelligence, using the intelligence community in order to um, have the data and identify exactly who uh, falls under their category of domestic uh, extremists. And, of course, that surveillance is going to be done by uh, agencies like the FBI, which you know, if you've been paying attention to the history of the FBI, you know, there have been all sorts of issues with uh, the tactics they've engaged in, uh, tactics that violate our civil liberties. Um, but that's even the case in recent history. In fact, back in uh, 2015, the FBI was indiscriminately spying on the American people without them even knowing about it. The Associated Press broke the story at the time. Here are the details. The Associated Press has learned that the FBI has been using scores of low-flying airplanes with high-tech imaging devices, all registered to fictitious companies. People for years, of going back more than a decade, have been concerned when they see these low-flying airplanes circling above their house, so much so that some people even call 911 and ask the police, who is this person circling above? The AP traced at least 50 aircraft back to the FBI, including this single-engine Cessna spotted at a regional airport in northern Virginia. The key thing on on that aircraft is that if you look on the left-hand side, there's like a white basketball-looking object. And what that is is a camera. So when the plane makes 90-degree or rather left-hand turns going around a certain area, 
the camera is off to the side recording as the aircraft is sweeping over a certain maybe two mile radius. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's fantastic. And the reason why this was, I mean, I, I want to say a big story, but it barely got any t- attention. But the reason why it was a story at all is because the FBI, of course, was not disclosing to the American people that they were indiscriminately being spied on. Um, and when you look at the communities that the FBI was uh, honing in on, the uh, protests that broke out uh, in response to uh, the death of Freddie Gray in police custody was one of the targets, right? And so there's a worry about uh, this intelligence gathering that targets people who have legitimate concerns about um, policing, legitimate concerns about inequality in the country. It could be thought of, and I do think of it, as a form of intimidation. If you know that Big Brother is watching and spying on you, you might be less inclined to engage in a movement uh, that could catch their attention and lead to more surveillance of your personal life. And so there are of course, certainly issues with these government agencies. However, things get even trickier and shadier once there is a relationship with the public and private sector. Because of course, as we know, the private sector brings along its own challenges due to a very clear profit motive. So, um, you know, much like any marketplace, if there is a profit motive behind beefing up the security state, You better believe that we'll be beefing up the security state. And that was already happening before Biden came into office. And so let's pivot over to private surveillance and something that is impacting communities already. Um, So there is a public safety committee in St. Louis, and they just passed a surveillance measure that relies on the use of these so-called spy planes that would hover overheads um, every over the heads of every single person living in that community. And it's such a far-reaching form of surveillance that everyone should be concerned about this. Uh, So Board Bill 200, according to um, a local Fox affiliate, proposed a contract between the city of St. Louis and the company Persistent Surveillance Systems. (laughs) As if that name isn't creepy enough. Persistent surveillance systems. They would provide aerial pictures that would help track movements after a crime is committed. Now, uh, this is something that has already been implemented in other parts of the country, and it's been incredibly opaque. But getting back to St. Louis, the uh, camera proposal calls for flights to occur up to 18 hours a day using three planes. The aircraft would use wide-angle cameras to capture images of up to 32 square miles a second. Now, the technology was created by a former U.S. Air Force officer, because of course it was, um, and the gentleman's name is Ross McNutt. That's his real name. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of an explanation of what his technology does in this next video. Enjoy. We believe that this will revolutionize policing. McNutt is an Air Force veteran whose company in Ohio, <laughs> Persistent Surveillance Systems, wants to roll out the battlefield technology in U.S. cities after he developed it for the military in Iraq. This is actually the camera system here. This Cessna is equipped with 12 powerful cameras. It can hover more than a mile above a city for hours at a time, capturing everything in public view. We'll take the picture of a city, 32 square miles of a city, once a second at resolutions that we can just barely follow a person to and from a crime scene where they came from before the crime, even though we may not have known that crime was going to be committed. 
Once someone calls police and reports a crime, technicians can zoom in on a recording of a particular area, essentially turning back the clock to look for evidence. Are these spy planes? We can call them community support planes. Yeah. Oh, community support uh, planes. That's a really interesting way of framing something that tracks our every move, in most cases without communities even knowing about it. Um, And unfortunately, this has been uh, tested in other parts of the country, uh, parts of the country that are still considering contracting this company um, for more surveillance. So uh, in Baltimore, for instance, there was a pilot program that had all sorts of issues. Um, It was written about uh, by Baltimore Magazine. I highly recommend this piece. Uh, Prying eyes, military-grade surveillance keeps watch over Baltimore and city protests, but catches few criminals. And we'll get to the efficacy of this, uh, you know, civil liberties issue in just a second. Um, But there were a lot of problems with the program. For instance, there was a lack of accurate data um, to, you know, either boast uh, its its efficacy or show that it isn't um, effective. There was also a lack of transparency for the community. People living in Baltimore had no idea that this program was being implemented and that their every move was being tracked by these spy planes. Um, also, there were concerns about data leaks from this private company, Persistent Surveillance. And um, what exactly is the surveillance focusing on? Is it actually focusing on crime or is it also surveilling people who engage in um, public protests. Now, after more than 700 hours uh, aloft over the city, just one arrest has been made with aid from the program's imagery data, according to the Baltimore Police Department. Meanwhile, major Black Lives Matter protests have been among public street activities widely captured and recorded. And um, just how effective are these spy planes? Let's watch. This is one of our aircraft. It's the one we're using here in Baltimore. This is our camera system. It's 192 million pixels, which makes it about equivalent to 800 video cameras at once. And everything is fed down to the ground live through our data links here. We do wide area surveillance. We watch cities at a time in order to assist law enforcement in lowering crime rates. We're essentially a Google Earth Live with TiVo capability that allows us to follow people to and from crime scenes. Yeah, but how effective is it? I mean, the Baltimore Police Department said that this helped, um, you know, solve one crime. Um, And unfortunately, McNutt is not very forthcoming when it comes to any data regarding the efficacy of the technology that he's pushing on uh, various cities throughout the country. Um, So McNutt argues that the system could reduce crime in Baltimore by up to 30 percent. But there's no research to back up that claim. Only a 2017 review by the National Police Foundation recommending further study, further study. So there's no organization and there's no data indicating that it would uh, help decrease crime by 30 percent. The residents of Baltimore, by the way, as I've said before, and I want to say it again, didn't even know that they were being surveilled in this way. Persistence Surveillance Systems trial in Baltimore was only disclosed to the public two weeks after its initial phase was completed, which led to an uproar and backlash for good reason. People should know that there's a private company spying on them with the help of their local government. 
Um, And what made the situation worse for people living in Baltimore was that their data was, in fact, being leaked by persistent surveillance to the press in an effort to, uh, you know, push positive PR about the private company. Uh, The Baltimore Police Department called them out on this, uh, and they threatened to end a controversial aerial surveillance program, claiming that serious breaches of confidentiality were jeopardizing the city's relationship with the Ohio-based company. Uh, Police, by the way, also said that they received repeated requests from the media to corroborate information about the program allegedly shared by persistent surveillance systems, uh, despite police chief of staff Eric uh, Melencon uh, telling owner Ross McNutt multiple times that such information needed to be signed off on by the department. Now, the uh, Baltimore Police Department also wrote a pretty strongly worded letter to McNutt, um, and they argued that the continuing failure to maintain the confidentiality of unverified data relating to the aerial investigation research program, and specifically the unwillingness to abide by repeated instructions that the Baltimore Police Department must approve all public communities or communications, I should say, is disturbing. And of course, uh, the ACLU has weighed in on this and has been fighting uh, the implementation of these spy planes throughout the country. They did release a statement saying, unlike lawful forms of aerial surveillance and... uh, Unlike lawful forms of aerial surveillance, the warrantless air program subjects plaintiffs and virtually all of Baltimore's 600,000 residents to long-term, wide-area, and indiscriminate surveillance that will capture the whole of an individual's movements and thereby, thereby reveal their privacies of life. This surveillance is inescapable. And revelation of private information to the air program is involuntary. Short of never leaving home, when the planes are in the air, there's no way to avoid defendant's surveillance system. And what's also concerning is just how often this this very technology has been implemented in our country. How many cities have already engaged with this type of program? Uh, There's more details on that in the next video. Uh, We've started off in Philadelphia at one point. We did operations here in Baltimore previously. Uh, We've done operations in Indianapolis, Compton, Nogales, Torreone, Charlotte, and now we're back here in Baltimore, and we hope to be here forever. Now, of course, he hopes to be there forever. I mean, we're talking about a man who's pushing a technology that he could make a lot of money from. And there are some cities that decided to give McNutt the middle finger, uh, including... Los Angeles, where I live. In 2012, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which, by the way, has its own issues, and McNutt's planes tried wide area surveillance over Compton, California, without notifying residents or elected leaders. In 2014, he pitched Dayton the idea, but ran into stiff civil liberties opposition from the community. Now, I have all sorts of issues with Los Angeles, especially since they engaged previously, but there has been enough of a backlash that Luckily, it seems unlikely that McNutt's uh, technology will be implemented again in the city. But what's important is that people are informed about this program. So they're not left in the dark about this public-private partnership to essentially encroach on their civil liberties. Um, But more often than not, by the way, 
McNutt uses this argument of um, cost saving in order to persuade uh, community leaders and local politicians to do these pilot programs, to do test trials of uh, these spy planes. And uh, here's an example of him making that case in a fairly recent interview. For a year of surveillance, Ross charges about $2 million. But that's less than the cost of flying a police helicopter. Baltimore will have three planes flying over different parts of the city during daylight hours. McNutt argues his system is cheaper and more effective than a police helicopter and that the visual evidence can be used in court. So it's possible in some cases this might help exonerate people. Absolutely. For now, private donors are financing this experiment. If it's successful, more communities could soon find themselves under a watchful eye. Oh, we'll get to those private donors in just a second. But McNutt's argument makes me think of private prisons because it's the same argument that they make when they convince uh, various municipalities to move away from um, public, uh, publicly funded and publicly controlled uh, prisons uh, to focus more on uh, privately run prisons, which, by the way, are also publicly funded. And private prisons have all sorts of issues, including being incredibly abusive and in- they engage in human rights abuses uh, against inmates. And so I This argument of, oh, we're going to save you a lot of money is ridiculous, especially when you consider the fact that beefing up the surveillance state doesn't actually address the root causes of violence and violent crime in cities across the country. In fact, during the 1990s, when Joe Biden had pitched his disastrous crime bill, Bernie Sanders, who was in the House of Representatives at the time, uh, got on the House floor and he gave an incredibly strong speech arguing why the crime bill, essentially criminalizing people, was the wrong way to address violent crime in America. Here's a little taste of what he had to say. A society which neglects, which oppresses, and which disdains a very significant part of its population, which leaves them hungry, impoverished, unemployed, uneducated, and utterly without hope, will, through cause and effect, create a population which is bitter, which is angry, which is violent, and a society which is crime-ridden. And that is the case in America, and it is the case in other countries throughout the world. And Bernie is absolutely right about that. He was right back in the 1990s. He makes similar arguments today. And there is a lot of data uh, showing the correlation uh, between poverty and high crime rates. So, for instance, uh, there was a fairly recent study done by 24-7 Wall Street. And they found that the cities with the highest violent crime rates tend to share other socioeconomic characteristics, notably a lack of economic opportunity. In the vast majority of cities on this list, and they did provide a pretty extensive list, poverty and unemployment rates are higher than they are nationwide. Often these cities, by the way, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this, often these cities uh, are former manufacturing hubs clustered in the industrial Midwest. Cities in Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio have all been affected by the decline of American manufacturing and now uh, have some of the highest crime rates in the country. 
country. And I'll give you one specific example. The study, by the way, was done a few years ago. So uh, clearly it was before the pandemic. Um, but I am very curious to see how uh, poverty linked to this pandemic has um, further exacerbated these statistics. But nonetheless, let me let me give you the example of Dayton, Ohio. There were about 922 violent crimes for every 100,000 people in Dayton, Ohio in 2018. Well more than double the national violent crime rate of 369 per 100,000 people. Crime is often higher in areas with limited economic opportunity. In Dayton, 32.7% of the population lives below the poverty line, more than double the national poverty rate of 14.6%. But as we've seen over and over again, rather than address why crime happens in the first place, we engage in this vicious cycle of turning to private industry to try to solve the symptoms of a virus that's been impacting this country for decades now. And local politicians, much like Joe Biden, just want to beef up the security state. And that is not going to help us. If anything, it's going to violate uh, whatever rights we have left uh, pertaining to our, you know, civil liberties and our privacy. Uh, so the pilot program, by the way, in St. Louis is not going to cost $2 million. It's going to cost a lot more than that. Um, so some of the figures that you hear uh, McNutt share with the public are inaccurate anyway. The pilot program in St. Louis would be a three-year trial that would cost an estimated $7.5 to $10 million. But the test run will not be publicly funded. It will be funded by private donors who are shady as hell. Private donors who honestly see this as more of an investment to make more money in the future. So um, it will be funded by uh, Arnold Ventures. They refer to themselves as like a philanthropic organization, but they're not. This is an LLC. Uh, if they wanted to be a philanthropic uh, nonprofit organization, they could file in a different way, of course, but they didn't choose to do that. Now, who are Laura and John Arnold? Well, they have a net worth of an estimated $3.3 billion, mostly earned in John Arnold's career running a hedge fund. Fantastic. And by the way, the Arnolds um, have bankrolled causes across the political spectrum from conservative leaning efforts to expand school choice, meaning private schools and charter schools, and overhaul public pensions to liberal oriented initiatives like taxing soft drinks and carbon emissions. <laughs> and uh, when they funded the pilot program in Baltimore, they again did not do it through a philanthropic uh, foundation. They instead did this through an LLC. And what an LLC also helps them do is, um, you know, make the transi transition less transparent. Um, it, it's a lot more opaque to the public. And that is an issue in and of itself. And so the vicious cycle continues. Hedge fund manager and the entire uh, financial system lobby to maintain a system of inequality, uh, the system that we currently have, a system that uh, drives a lot of crimes of desperation in big cities throughout the country. And then uh, once those crimes become an issue, rather than address the inequality, we end up turning to private companies funded by former hedge fund managers that just seek to make a profit by surveilling us, by spying on us, by uh, essentially targeting, in a lot of cases, uh, the types of demonstrations that we saw throughout the country over the summer. And um, 
provision, I want to end with this one last example because it really does crystallize what I'm trying to say here about how private industry sees this as an opportunity. Uh, provision, which is a uh, company that makes ne- uh, nearly weightless cameras that you're supposed to put on surveillance drones, um, is pretty transparent about how they see this as a lucrative opportunity. In fact, uh, Prevision's chief executive, Steve Siddharth, says one of his company's goals is to blanket entire cities with small drones, specifically Mm. surveillance drones, because that's what he's in the business of. So I am worried about what is to come from Joe Biden's administration regarding the surveillance state. Uh, But my point here is we've had a problem with this for a long time, so much so that it's been happening without the public even being aware about it. Uh, So we need to discuss real solutions to crime that we're experiencing in the country. We need to stop turning to private companies to, um, you know, mitigate some of the symptoms of inequality in the country. And we need to hold local politicians and local communities accountable when they get uh, lured into these ridiculous uh, pilot programs that only further demonize their own citizens. Well, uh, thank you for terrifying me. I had was not aware of this spy plane story until you brought it up in the Decode chat um, earlier this week. And it is absolutely terrifying. I mean, OK, so here's 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 an example of something. Uh, Twitter and Facebook banned Trump and liberals were like, yes, finally, you know, and some people on the left, like myself, were like, you know, be careful with this kind of thing today. The Socialist Workers Party in the UK was banned from Facebook. Um, La Marea, uh, which is a Spanish organization that man- that monitors um, human rights abuses uh, to migrants in Europe, was kicked off of YouTube. This very show, the Noam Chomsky interview we did, which was our most watched uh, video, um, was kind of deplatformed by by YouTube. Um, you know, Bosco got a notification for that. It was demonetized, right? Or demonetized, whatever. I don't know the terms. Uh, But yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, And it was it was affected in some way by the by the uh, by the censors in in our oligarchy. Um, And, you know, this is just the kind of thing that happens when you give the powers to do this kind of thing to unaccountable private tyrannies. Right. I mean, it's just that's just the reality of it. You know, like, it, and that's how it starts usually is like they, they do it to someone we don't like. And then it's like, oh, that feels good. I don't like those people. Like, fuck them. You know, and then uh, but then mm-hmm. all of a sudden what happens is it boomerangs back to the people we do like. Like, and in, in this is like in the wake of like the Capitol Hill protest or whatever, like where there was like all this reporting about the FBI uh, knowing about it or whatever. And it's like, you know, talking about like their, you know, how white supremacy was a domestic terror threat and all that stuff. You know, they also put in the same report that Black Lives Matter was a domestic terror threat. And like, who do you think is going to is going to be affected by that kind of thing? I mean, and who do you think is going to be affected by the spy plane and, you know, the expansion of military toys um, in the hands of law enforcement? It's just it's going to be the people that we like eventually. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just going to that's just that's inevitable. Um, yeah. Which is why and, like, I the mean, sort it's of principled. Been, yeah. It's been affecting the people we like uh, for a long yeah. time. And and, you know. I think I, I don't I don't think this is the end all of, of solving the issue of, you know, the giant tech companies. Uh, but I do think that a good first step is the um, effort to basically sue uh, platforms like Facebook for their, um, you know, and for antitrust violations, um, yeah. because 
You're right. I mean, look, I think I still agree with deplatforming Trump, at least temporarily, right? Like, I think after, you know, Biden was inaugurated and, you know, the the violence died down, you know, you can have a discussion about allowing him back on whatever. But after what happened in the Capitol, um, you know, there was legitimate concern that he was going to keep egging these guys on and people didn't want to deal with more violence. Uh, but I hear what you're saying. It is terrifying that you don't really have many options when it comes to social media because of, you know, th- these monopolies. And if you're on the left and you're using these platforms effectively um, to mobilize people and it's a it's a part of your strategy, that could be absolutely devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the thing that I found really fascinating, though, is it's been happening to the left for a long time, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and it barely gets any attention. I don't know why it is that every time a right winger gets demonetized on YouTube, everyone, whether it's the left or the right, like they lose it t- together collectively. Um, if you know a show on the left gets censored, barely anyone notices, barely anyone cares, and wow. that's been incredibly frustrating. Well, that's a story as old as time, right? People who threaten. Yeah capital are you know marginalized people who do not uh, are you know sort of played up and that's just that's just a reality like that that the state and which is an arm of capital in under our system is going to um, attack those who threaten capital much more than much more than those who don't I mean that's just that's just always going to be I mean there's always going to be people here and there like there's there's collateral damage so to speak or useful idiots so mm-hmm. to speak you know like that they that they kind of pick and choose on the right to to make an example of or something but the real focus the real threat the real um, the real effect is going to be on on people on the left that that's just a tale as old as time whether it's local police departments or the FBI or I mean, I mean, this last week was Martin Luther King uh, Day. And just look at look at how the FBI treated Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's it's just um, it's a tale as old as time. So um, I, I just I think that, like, we just have to know that going forward that this is going to happen if we empower the security state. I mean, and it's going to happen more and more as things get worse. Um, you know, the, the Daniel Bessner always talks about uh, how, you know, the effect of, of, of a crumbling empire is that it takes the sort of uh, tactics that it uses in the outer fringes of the empire and then brings them home. <laughs> you know, um, the kind of repression yeah. that, that happens, you know, drone surveillance and all that stuff that, that happens all over the world um, uh, is going to end up just coming here. Um, you know, we're going to have little little buzzy drones outside my window over here uh, doing checking on whatever I'm doing here, reading my little decode segment as I'm writing it <laughs> to make sure that that I'm not saying anything too, uh, too dangerous or something, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's just that's the reality. I mean, that's that's just that's why it's so dangerous to cheer on and empower these security apparatuses when they target people we don't like. That's the sort of. That's been the tale. That's been the, the 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 consistent argument for things like the ACLU defending the free speech rights of Nazis, which is a you know very controversial thing that they've been doing for decades. Um, and you know it obviously makes people very uncomfortable, and I can see why. But they what they make the argument is that the principle is the, the important thing to defend because yeah they're not who gives you know they're, they're not like they're they're unimportant they're they're gonna they're they're not really like a threat to anything right now. Um, what is a threat is the violation of the principle because that will rebound on the people that we do like. 
So, like, yeah. I, I slightly, slightly disagree with you. I, I'm not a fan of censorship. I, I think that there are extreme cases where uh, it makes sense. So I totally agreed with deplatforming Alex Jones, considering, um, you know, the fact that he was targeting a family who lost a son in um, the, you know, Sandy Hook shooting. Um, and they had to move seven times. Like, inciting violence isn't protected under the Constitution, uh, you know, I don't like the argument of, oh, it's a private company, so they don't even have to abide by uh, the First Amendment. I, I, But what I do think is important, right, aside from the whole antitrust uh, effort that's taking place right now, is this is a form of communication that should be thought of as a public utility. And once it's under, you know, once it's considered a public utility, um, then the constitutional protections do apply to it. And as we know, there are limitations to the First Amendment. So, and, and the limitations are very specific. Inciting violence does not, uh, get any type of constitutional protection under the First Amendment. And so I just think that the decisions that would be made under a public utility would be much better. And more importantly, there isn't a profit motive behind it. Because look, the Chomsky video that we did, and I'm not, this is not an excuse for what happened. I just want people to understand why it happened. The reason why the Chomsky video uh, was demonetized is because advertisers don't want to be on that kind of content because that's the kind of content that challenges capital, right? And so if you're dealing with a public utility, then you don't get deplatformed or demonetized or whatever. I mean, it wouldn't, I don't think it would even be monetized, but you get what I'm saying? Like the, yeah. the, 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 you think that Twitter banned all of those QAnon folks because they're actually concerned about what those folks are going to do to this country? No, they don't care about that. They allowed that stuff to run rampant the entire time until the riots took place. Uh, Facebook did the same thing. Once they realize that advertisers are going to run away and their whole business model is going to collapse or potentially collapse, that's when they purge all the people who pose a threat to their profit motive. So I mean, that's, I guess the, I think that the extent that there should be regulation in this kind of thing, it should be, like you said, democratically and transparently done. And, you know, I, I agree that there is there there are instances potentially in which you could make an argument for certain regulations on the type of media or the type of. Uh, things that people say or whatever, like yelling, uh, what is it, like yelling fire in a theater when there's no, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. But it's, th those are decided democratically through a democratic process and, tr and applied transparently through some standards that we have all kind of come together and decided upon. That's just not, yep. that's just not the case right now. And that's just not the case totally, of what yeah. this kind of thing is happening. And again, these efforts by private companies, both in the security state and in social media and all that stuff, um, they're completely unaccountable and completely outside of democratic control. Therefore, they're going to be bad. I mean, by definition, there is no scenario in which they're not going to be that way. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna th sprinkle some some little bitty like deplorables that we don't like into the mix to like you know keep us distracted. But the vast majority of it is gonna be is gonna be affecting us. So, anyway, yeah. All right. Well, All right. I'm uh, I'm ready to hear about some workers getting some stuff done. Yes, 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 yes. You know, you know how like uh, the politics feels pretty hopeless lately. You know, there was that like really saccharine and grim inauguration this week, and it just I don't know. It kind of depressed me. Well, we have the prescription for that, and it's not more cowbell. It's the strike. 
striking as scary as it can be, delivers the goods. That's been proven time and time again throughout the history of capitalism. The only thing that will achieve real progress is collective actions that threaten the one thing that makes the system go, and that is profit. And the best way to threaten profit is to withhold labor by striking. Because, you see, if one worker alone refuses to work, it's easy for the boss to fire them. But if all the workers collectively refuse to work at the same time, well, then it's much more difficult for the boss to fire them all at the same time. Hire an entire new staff, teach them how to work and how all things work. The delays would be untenable, so the company is forced to negotiate to end the strike. And this week saw a remarkable strike. Every member of the union Teamsters Local 202 at the Hunts Point Terminal Produce Market now on strike after the market denied their request for a raise of $1 more an hour. The market's counteroffer was an increase of 32 cents an hour. It's not good enough just to clap for them and say they're essential. When they ask for a decent raise, a fair number, they should be told, yes, you can have that and thank you. I just love that, you know. You should be told, yes, you can have that, and thank you. (laughs) So the International Brotherhood of Teamsters went on strike. You know the Teamsters. They're probably the most famous union in America. They represent 1.3 million workers, and they're primarily known for representing workers in logistics and transportation sectors, although not exclusively. And if you don't know the Teamsters, go watch The Irishman and learn something. So last Sunday, 1,400 Teamsters went on strike for better pay. And you must think to yourself, 1,400 workers. I mean, that doesn't sound like that many people. I mean, I've played high school soccer matches in front of 1,400 people, and trust me, I wasn't that good. But not so fast. 1,400 workers actually have a ton of power, like way more than you realize. You see, those 1,400 workers are essential for the largest wholesale food market in the world. The Hunts Point Terminal Market is the largest wholesale produce market in the world. Delivering fruits and vegetables to grocery stores and restaurants, it provides to 22 million people in 49 states. The union says without these workers to sort and deliver the products, the tri-state area's food supply will be greatly impacted. So yeah, 1,400 workers are needed to send food to 22 million people over 49 states. I mean, think about the amount of businesses that need that to survive. It provides over 60% of the produce in New York City alone, which is a city of 8 million people. So think about the power that they have and how now they are exercising it. We've gone through a lot, you know, to, uh, you know, take care of our community to make sure that we have food on the table for them. Of course, uh, soon after they called the strike, the police responded by arresting several of the strikers. Monday night, tensions boiled over as several members were arrested after temporarily blocking trucks from entering the market. Order to leave the roadway and utilize the available sidewalk. But according to Jacobin's Alex Press, the arrests only strengthened the union's resolve. She writes, quote, if striking in freezing temperatures is always a challenge, in recent days, the atmosphere has grown festive despite a heavy police presence. Video from the action shows a backdrop of Bad Bunny and fireworks with strikers drinking hot chocolate and warming themselves near a fire. After several strikers were arrested late Monday night, supporters rallied. Other union members from nurses and teachers to Verizon workers have traveled to the market's entrance at 772 Edgewater Road to reinforce the line 
Organizations such as Democratic Socialists of America have done likewise, organizing food and coffee distribution and collecting donations. And some of the videos did show a pretty festive atmosphere. fun. And in a show of solidarity, when a shipment of merchandise showed up at the Hunts Point market, the striking workers went up to the freight conductor and told them that they were in fact in the middle of a strike and, well, let them explain what happened. So, as of 7.35 p.m. tonight, CSX trying to deliver 21 freight cars of merchandise at the Hunts Point market. Our guys, our captains, our union guys came there, asked them to support our union. A locomotive engineer came out, saw them, said, we're Teamsters too. Turned the freight car right back around, headed back to Ohio. Another victory. Another day longer, another day stronger. We're going to get this contract come hell or high water. Thank you. And while every single national politician in the country was at the Joe Biden inauguration in D.C., Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not. To her immense credit, AOC skipped the inauguration and joined the Teamsters on the picket line. There, she spoke about the episode with the freight conductor and the meaning of solidarity. And our brothers and sisters loading those trucks are feeding and 60% of all the food coming through. And we're talking about these horns honking because the other night that truck came in and, and they stood up and talked to them and they said, listen, man, this is what's going on. And he said, you know what? I'm a Teamster too. I'm turning around going back to Ohio. Sent shivers down our spine. Shivers of solidarity down our spine over here. And I'm sure we scared those folks down over there. And that kind of solidarity is how we win everything. It's how we win our wages. It's how we win our rights. It's how we win a better country. And it's how we win our future. And I think it's so important that we remember that. Because yes, change happens at the ballot box. Yes, change happens in policy. But change happens on the picket line too. And we can't ever forget that. We can't ever forget that. So please, thank you all so much. Know what won this fight. Know what won it. It was the insistence. It was the willingness to put all of it on the line. Thank you to our brothers and sisters for your courage and your work to say, you know what? I'm going to put my mortgage on the line. I'm going to put all of it on the line for not just myself, but my family and everyone who enjoys this job after me. That's what you all did. So thank you so much. You have created a model for this country. And I hope everyone in this country is watching and shows what courage can create, what solidarity can create, and what a union can create. So who are we? Who are we? Who are we? Thank you very much. And that was AOC's second night on the picket line, by the way. And other Teamster leaders from around the country poured in. Here's Sean O'Brien, president of the Local 25 in Boston, who was running to be the Teamster general president in the fall. You walk in there with your head high and you make certain that these employers understand. These employers understand 
They're just tenants in our house. And make certain you let them know that the next time, the next time that they make an irrational decision, they need to look at the video of what you accomplished out here and understand that when you take on one Teamster, you take on every Teamster. Thank you very much. Good luck. Now, this is the first strike in 35 years at Hunts Point Market. And Jane McAlevey, who you know from this show and others, always talks about how workers learn to strike by watching others, other workers strike and win. And you're already seeing that this week because it wasn't just the Teamsters in New York that went on strike. A very different group of workers in New York also led a work stoppage. On Thursday, the staff at the New Yorker magazine led a 24-hour work stoppage, the timing of which was crucial because it meant the New Yorker's website did not get any new content on the day after Biden's inauguration. And Jacobin's Alex Press talked to Hannah Eisenman, the New Yorker Union's secretary-treasurer, and asked about asked her about what the Teamsters' action meant to them. She goes, asked about the Teamsters' strike taking place just north of the New Yorker offices, Eisenman said the following... Our members are inspired by the brave workers striking for what's right at Hunts Point. Though we may do different kinds of work, labor struggles across industries are obviously connected. We are all fighting for humane, dignified conditions, and it's galvanizing to see union members taking such powerful action to raise the standards of another New York institution. We support the Teamsters in their demands and in their strike, and we thank them for showing workers everywhere how it's done. So think about that. Teamsters working in produce shipping and New Yorker writers who sit around and write about like poetry and shit. They couldn't be more different, but their struggle is the same because they are both workers. And that's a beautiful thing. We need more of that. We need to see that the real fights are not amongst ourselves. The real fights are with the bosses, the people who own everything in this society. And as Biden takes power, and he nominally supports labor, while the Republicans are openly hostile to that, we need to keep the pressure on. The more labor action there is, the more real change you will see. I mean, it's like that scene in Sorry to Bother You. Yeah, you can call your congressman, like the liberals tell you to do every time there's some issue and if you want change. But at the end of the day, that doesn't affect that much. If you really want change, you need powerful and militant unions. And it wasn't until the main character joined the union fight at his workplace that he was able to effect change. And as Alex Press writes, quote, workers in the United States used to strike in the millions. Around 10% of the workforce withheld their labor in 1946. I mean, think about that. But strike activity has drastically diminished in recent decades. 2020 saw only around 10 major work stoppages with major being defined as involving 1,000 workers or more. 2019 saw around 25. The strike at Humped Point Market marks 2021's first new major work stoppage. And even if you are not part of a union, there are always ways you can lend your support. DSA, for example, led an organizing effort to send members to the picket line, bring food to the strikers, and raised money for a strike fund. And so, the workers at Hunts Point Market, who are as essential as can be, delivering food to millions asked for $1 an hour raise. The company said, no, you only get 30 cents. And so they went on strike. And they were there all week, struggling against the cold, the insecurity of not working, and of course, the cops. But I want to play the speech that local 202 president Dan Kane delivered on the picket line, because I think it's worth listening in full. Now, this is pretty long, but I really think it's worth playing the entire thing. I didn't know that we would be 
getting friends from all over the country who have sort of bought into this movement that regular people matter. But it sort of makes sense because I think there's a lot of people who feel that they get pushed around a little bit and they do day in, day out, dirty work in this country. And they, they're they told they're essential on one day, but on the next day they're forgotten. So we took this battle on and we hit the streets and we had so many friends show up that we, we lost count. We lost count. We had our friends in the Teamsters Union like our friends from New England and Local 25, Sean O'Brien. Yeah. Friends in New York, Crystal Bears in the audience. We have Local 817. Many, many locals through this week have shown up, stood up and shown up. And unions from around this city and, and indeed throughout the country. And then young people showed up and just volunteered to help us. I, 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 I'm amazed at their energy and their commitment just to other people. I asked them, do you need any help? Do you need any money? No, 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 no. We're okay. We want to help you. And I, and I just was uh, amazed at their effort and their consistency because they kept showing up. And, and I'm surprised the, the amount of food we've had here and people taking care. We've, we've had people send us supplies from as far as Texas and California. Oh, we saw you on TV and we wanted to help. And I think it's because the issue is such a simple one, that regular people matter, that they matter and that they should be able to stand up and stick up for themselves. And we've had politicians in our area that I've been very, very impressed with, from local politicians to people hearing about our our plight. They, too, saw that, that regular people every day do work that we don't pay attention to. We do not know how things get to where they be. How do they get to on our table? Well, they had to start the farm, had to get on a truck or a train or an airplane and move around the country and get here and then get unloaded. And this is not just this industry, but but all the industries that supply the essential goods and services of this country and make them. That's what we do. And essential workers cannot telecommute. They cannot stay home. And they were essential long before the pandemic. Long before the pandemic. And we have had a country that sort of has not recognized them. I said that, well, does it matter the work that they do? And I think that people are tired of that. And our members are tired of it. And we took on this battle. And it was a somewhat of a battle. I mean, as you can tell on Instagram, and we got some tough people in the union here standing up for their rights. And I was never so proud as to be out in the middle of the street the other night at 3 a.m. with working class people with kids and families and bills and things to do. And there they were standing up for themselves, but also all the rest of the people in this country. They had enough of this stuff. And I want to tell you that day, I believe, struck a chord in working class people in this country. And we weren't at the bargaining table. And we didn't know whether we'd get a contract. And we've had a contract at the produce industry of the union 80 years, 90 years, something like that. The union's 100 years old. And all the things that we fought for were on the line. Every, every benefit in that contract was on the line if we lost. If we couldn't hold this line, if we couldn't keep people engaged, if we couldn't keep this fight up, 
everything that we've earned over those years from pensions to hospitalization to the work week to everything that we have come to know in our employment would be on the line and we did not know if that if we were going to prevail or we were going to get back to the bargaining table but it was because of the pressure and the effort of our membership and the rest of the people that showed up we got back to that bargaining table and today i'm proud that we have reached a tentative agreement to, to sign a new contract to protect our investments. So remember, they asked for $1. The company said, no, you get 30 cents. So they went on strike. And that tentative agreement that Dan Kane just mentioned was for a 70% increase, sorry, 70 cent increase in pay. This morning, the Teamsters voted for the new contract unanimously. So it's safe to say that the strike worked. Um, I really appreciated that last video. Um, You know, so I'll talk about, I guess, more substantive uh, thoughts I have. But let me just talk about, I guess, emotional thoughts I have first, since um, that video had an impact on me. You know, the world feels like such a cold, dark place and the people in it feel cold and dark. I mean, especially considering like the insanely ego-driven, narcissistic industry that we work in. Um, and it just, I guess it, it really does skew your perception of people sometimes. And so yeah. that, I, I, that video really like spoke to me because yeah, I mean, people who have, you know, who are, have their, have their own issues, um, and have no resources and are dealing with an incredibly, uh, cruel government that keeps pushing neoliberal policies down our throats, even as it's making us poorer and sicker. Um, they took time out of their day to show up and, and help, you know, DSA members, uh, wanting to contribute in any way they can. Like, I guess like the humanity around it is so, so important. And, Getting to the more, you know, substantive thing I wanted to bring up is that power is collective power. It's not based on one personality. It's not based on one leader. It's not based on one congresswoman or congressman. It's based on collective action. It's based on people understanding where they have power and how they can join forces with their colleagues, with their comrades, whatever word you want to use to describe them, in order to challenge people who consistently have power and, you know, essentially decide what our livelihoods are going to be, what our quality of life is going to be. If one of them, on their own, decided to speak up and stand up to their employer, they're done. If, especially if they're not unionized, they're done. They're done. Next. There's a, there's a long line of people waiting to take this job, right? But when you have that kind of collective action, it's just way more powerful. And again, the main word here is power, power, understand power and use it. Um, and I just, I love watching, I love watching these success stories and it feels like, I mean, it, it doesn't happen as often as we would like, right? But when it does happen, I think it's really important to celebrate it because as Jane McAlevey uh, says, like winning is important. It's, yeah. it's like taking a vitamin. It, it energizes you and encourages you to keep going. Um, so I love this story so much, and I'm glad you did it. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in an age of extreme cynicism, and it's easy to understand why people feel that way. I mean, politics has essentially 
done nothing for 40 years in this country, right? Since the neoliberal era, we've just been in a sort of downward slide um, that no matter who you vote for, no matter who's in power, just seems to be continuously going in the same direction. I mean, yeah, there's differences between, you know, your elected leaders and whatnot um, for important issues. But the in the grand scheme of things, at the really big picture level, wages are going down, have been going down. Yeah. The, you know, protections for workers have been disappearing. The welfare state has been eroded. You know, more of our public goods have been transferred to private hands. Again, more blame to one to the other, whatever, but the big picture remains the same and the trajectory has been the same no matter who is in power. The big constant has been an attack on labor power. And that is why the trajectory is downward. And because politics hasn't delivered the goods, people are cynical. And then because people are cynical, they don't stand up and fight. And then politics gets worse. And so it becomes a vicious cycle. Winning is important. Like doing this kind of thing and then pointing to that as an example of what we need to be doing is important because people need to feel like if they do something, they're going to win. I mean, this is, and, 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 and so much of our media class and propaganda tells us that in order to affect change, we need to do things that don't actually really affect change all that much. Like, right. for example, right. call your congressman or do a hashtag or the thing, you know, like the petition, yeah, maybe some, yeah, yeah, you know, they have some maybe small effect on the margins or whatever, but like without labor power, there is no progress. They're just period. It's just it never has happened anywhere in the history of capitalism. Has there been any sort of progress without labor power at the forefront? Point to anything, anything you want. The right to vote, the right to uh, civil rights, right? Which the labor, the labor aspect of civil rights has been completely erased from the history, yep. completely erased from the popular imagination. Um, it's just impossible to get anything done, anything, 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 unless you strike at the heart of the system, which is profit. Profit is what makes the system go round. And if you don't threaten profit, they will ignore you. They will, you know, let out little safety valves here and there uh, to ease the pressure, let you protest on the streets, you know, uh, the Women's March, uh, the George Floyd, pro all that stuff. You know, like, yeah, if you don't threaten profits, you're not getting anything, nothing, 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 nothing. And um, that's why I think it's like when you see something like this and you see the the weight of propaganda behind demonizing something like this, I mean, I mean, we all laughed at that New York Times headline uh, correction. I don't know, Kale, oh if you God. have the graphic, but it's like, yeah. So the original New York Times headline was what's in red, right? Why market workers are on strike. They want $1 an hour raise. It was changed afterwards to strike at largest U.S. wholesale produce market, threaten supply chain. Supply chain. Oh, my God. Look, all of a sudden, the workers are a threat, you know? Right, this is exactly. the liberal New York exactly. Times. Um, so you have... This is where the work of understanding history, understanding ideology is very important because it gives you the tools to see something like this and filter it and be like, no, this is bullshit. 
these workers are in the right. They should strike and they should get whatever. Like, like the, like Dan Kane said in that, in that video is hilarious. It's like, they should be told, yes, yeah. you can have it. And thank you. You know, <laughs> like that, that's just. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. No, I love that video so, so much. It was so good. No. And, and by the way, just, um, a, a more context, uh, with that headline, because right now the New York Times is making a very, obvious and concerted effort to uh, appear as objective as possible, right? In their minds, they think they're trying to appear objective um, by kowtowing to conservatives and Republicans. Um, one example is an editor who uh, edits their live section uh, had tweeted something so benign about like on an inauguration day in regard to Joe Biden um, landing uh, in DC, she said something along the lines of, I have chills. That's it. They decided to end her contract because <laughs> they think that it's too partisan to say that she has chills. Um, and then at the same time, there was a press conference with Jen Psaki, the uh, White House press secretary, where a New York Times uh, reporter raised his hand and asked, why doesn't Biden have a Republican in his cabinet? But see, they do those things because they don't want to appear biased. Yeah. But that headline change shows you the exact bias that they've had, that they've been having, and will continue to have moving forward. The anti-labor uh, bias, the anti-worker bias, you're going to see that over and over again. And it's incredibly yeah. frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the media and everything in our society these days is filtered through a partisan lens, which is really filtered through a culture war lens. And that is just so destructive to the kind of change that we would support at Jacobin, for example, that the 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 obsession with culture war and partisan fighting is it misses the actual fight, which is between capital and labor, like the, the, the sort of central Marxian critique still holds true that history is a class war. And that the real fight is between capital and labor. And if we can reorient things into that fight, rather than kind of obsessing over culture war bullshit, we'll have a chance. Because we're not going to solve anything by fighting the culture war. I mean, climate change? Like, are you crazy? You know, like there was a there was a study that came out last year um, that the sort of the, the, the global 1% are responsible for more uh, emissions, greenhouse emissions, to then the bottom, like, like, no, they're responsible for twice as many greenhouse emissions than the bottom 50% of the world, right? Not just more, twice as much, right? So you don't think we're going to solve climate change by fighting a class war? Like, that's the only way to solve it. I mean, that global 1%, they're the bosses, they're the capitalists, they're the people who own everything. Um, the bottom 50% of the people who own nothing. And it, unless, until we reorient the fights that we have in our society to that, instead of that, we're not going. Yep. We're not getting anywhere. I I absolutely agree. Um, I I would just make one slight, um, I guess, point of clarification, and it's it's new. It's really nuanced, but you know, I, I agree with you on the culture wars, but also be incredibly skeptical of Steve Bannon types or Tucker Carlson types who use certain rhetoric to appeal to workers while providing the, uh, in their minds, solution of nationalism as a response. Um, because remember, people like Steve Bannon, who uh, likes to talk to talk, um, was, was facing charges 
for literally stealing money from uh, donors. He created like some fake, uh, you know, fundraising effort in order to build. Yeah, the Kickstarter to like raise money for Trump's wall. And then he just pocketed the money because that's who Steve Bannon is. He doesn't he doesn't care about workers. He doesn't care about, um, you know, protections to prevent people from getting ripped off. He loves to take advantage of that stuff. But he certainly does love uh, the nationalist message. And what I really always appreciated about, um, and I know I bring him up a lot on the show, I can't help it, but the work that Michael did, Michael Brooks did, was that he Mm -hmm. had an internationalist response, an internationalist solution to it, right? Um, You know, the workers in other countries we're pitted against them right now under this system. And that's what people like Steve Bannon will take advantage of to persuade people that we need to pursue nationalistic politics. But no, those are our our friends. Those are workers that we should, you know, we should work with um, to do something about the fact that workers across the globe are getting crushed right now, uh, rather than, you know, push toward this like racist, um, you know, isolationist, nationalistic, uh, way of doing things. Well, but it, and it shouldn't come out of the goodness of our hearts. Like it's not, it's not a, it's not a essentially a, a, a moral argument or anything like that. It's a practical totally. argument. Like if you if you don't support kind of an internationalist vision, I mean, capital can move around very easily. A few buttons on the computer and it's gone. You know, and it can it can move around very easily, and it could. You know, that's why. Um, and but workers can't do that. Like you know, you, you it's not easy to move from. Uh, you know, Topeka, Kansas to uh, Chengdu in China. Uh, it's just not, you know, but, but capital can just go bloop, like in less than a second, it's gone. And, you know, so if, unless you um, support an internationalist vision, you're always going to get screwed. Like these sort of na- nationalist appeals are are never going to be enough. They're uh, they're like a, a false promise. I mean, I, I did a whole segment on on, on right populists. Uh, on this show a few months ago it's just it's mm-hmm. it's 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 a way to it's like a trick it's not it's not real it's not um um it's so but that, but th- those are i mean steve bannon and tucker carlson are very rich people like they're millionaires both of them you know you should not listen yep. to millionaires almost ever on anything <laughs> like safe to blanket rule of thumb good to ignore millionaires almost every in, in every single uh <laughs> you but you'll be better off uh doing that uh, in general so so yeah i mean it's not and, and this is where so many like the sort of liberal uh the liberal instinct is to is to appeal to guilt or morality like look at those poor people or whatever and it's like the the no. the sort of traditional left impulse is to appeal to people's self-interest and that is the right. only way you're going to build some sort of meaningful coalition because you if you don't if you don't like find solidarity with your fellow man and your fellow worker not just in your country but in the countries abroad capital will go go to another place (laughs) the wires there's got wires and stuff i don't even know how it works there's a few clicks on the computer and I know, it's I know gone. how it works. I see it in my bank account every every yeah. month. <laughs> like, whoop, it's gone. It's gone. But yeah, no, I I I totally agree. Um, and that was a fantastic segment. Um, so let's. Um, I feel like this is a good good time to kind of go to our interview because uh, Richard Wolf did touch on um, many of the topics that you uh, mentioned, Nando. Not specifically on the Hunts um, uh, pro- Hunts Point protest, but. 
uh, strike, I should say, but on, you know, strategy, of course, that's something that a lot of people um, turn to minds like Richard Wolf to get some answers to. Um, and I really, really appreciated this interview. Um, so um, again, just to warn you guys, it was pre-recorded. Um, and I wish we could have uh, spoken to him a lot longer. I, I, I know we both had a lot more questions to ask, but um, it's about 30 minutes long. I think it's super enjoyable. And uh, once that's done, we're going to come back do our salt segment and also uh, take some of your super chat questions. So uh, please feel free to ask us whatever questions you'd like. Um, we will, you know, of course, uh, reject some questions if they're inappropriate, but I, I want to give you that warning as well. But nonetheless, let's uh, now go to our interview with Richard Wolf. Again, stick around afterwards and we'll see you then. Joining us now is Marxist economist uh, Richard Wolf, uh, who also hosts a show called Economic Update over at Democracy at Work, uh, one of my husband's favorite shows. Professor Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. So I, I figured we can start off by talking about what I would argue is one of the most important uh, policy proposals coming from uh, the Democratic Party right now, and it has to do with uh, economic relief tied to this disastrous coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, Biden has already proposed something that, uh, you know, I've heard your previous comments about how uh, you don't think goes far enough in providing economic relief. And we can talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but my first question to you is really about what could happen in the future should Democrats fail to rise in this moment with uh, a robust economic policy proposal that actually addresses the fundamental issues that most Americans are dealing with. Uh, no well-paying jobs, uh, no universal basic income, uh, no real relief to help individuals uh, avoid eviction in the future once moratoriums are lifted. What could happen to the Democratic Party, and more importantly, this country overall, should Democrats fail to provide the economic relief that Americans desperately need today? Well, I think it, it's more of the kind of pendulum swing we've already seen. Uh, you did not do in the period between the crash of 2008 and uh, the election of 2016. You didn't do what the American people needed and wanted. Uh, your so-called recovery from that crash was very uneven. It helped the top 1% to 5%, but not the rest of the people. And to be blunt, it paved the way for Mr. Trump, a different outsider, not like others, to portray that difference uh, as if it would solve the problems people had. And because they were so disgusted with both the Republican and Democratic Party establishments, um, they voted for it. And uh, here's my fear, to be really blunt in answering your question, that if we don't get a pretty good performance, not, not a good one, but a really good one, uh, you're going to have the same situation for years, maybe even in two years, from what you have now. Disappointment, there are big expectations, and if those are not met, the ability of a new Trump, maybe a little less vulgar, maybe a little less uh, fake in so much of what he said compared to what he did, uh, who will uh, 
renew this kind of uh, nationalist right-wing agenda uh, that he tried. And so I think, unfortunately, there isn't much time and there isn't much leeway. You're going to have to do massive things not held back by the conventions. Let me underscore this a different way. We're in the worst economic crash since the Great Depression. That has to be faced. And we're also at the same time in the worst public health failure of our society, also in a depression. It's crystal clear we'll be lucky to get out of this catastrophe with less damage done by the unspeakable catastrophe of the 1918 so-called Spanish flu. We've never had two of such crises at the same time. And if nothing else, that alone should argue that we have to go beyond what we did in the 1930s for the Great Depression, whereas what I see is an unwillingness even to go that far. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as that um, on the one hand, Biden released his uh, relief bill, at least goals, right? Depending on what happens in the Senate, it's not going to it's going to look not going to look anywhere near what what he said. But at least in theory, it does seem like a little bit different than what what Obama did in 2009 in response to the 2008 crisis, that it, it does seem a little bit bolder in, in on that front. But on the other hand, um, it, the the structural impediments of our political system are there um, are, are such that it's going to be incredibly difficult for him to pass anything, even that kind of un, insufficient um, insufficient bill. Um, how can we, on the one hand, fight to, to to get immediate relief to people who are really struggling, but on the other hand, expand the horizons beyond what is the conventions uh, that we know now? Here's what we need. Uh, at this point. We need a clear definition of what can be done and should be done that is very bold. We need an organization uh, to carry it forward. And by that, I mean the third thing, not just in the halls of Congress, but outside as well. The uh, pretense of those inside that they are not subject to the pressure of what they see in the street and what they see on television is false, and it always has been. But I believe the left has been remiss in not being out there publicly demanding the things that representatives are fighting for inside, or at least some are. And I would like to see a strategy that is both inside the halls of legislation and so on, the executive, and also outside. So let me start, if I could, with what is, needs to be demanded. In the Great Depression, it is often forgotten back in the 30s, one of the most important policies, daring at the time, was the decision of the Franklin Roosevelt government, a democratic government, to hire, and the estimates vary, 12 to 15 million unemployed people to become federal employees working in Civilian Conservation Corps, the WPA, countless other projects. This put people to work who were unemployed. It gave them a decent income. It allowed them to keep their mortgages and pay their rents and and feel good about themselves. Absolutely crucial. You know, it's an old story. Giving people a check 
is a very different act on many levels from giving them a job and job security and a decent income that isn't a handout, but is payment for work done like everybody else in the working class. And I'm amazed that nobody is even debating this doing this. This is this is absolutely crucial. We have 22, 23 million people collecting unemployment compensation from state or federal governments right now. Those people should be given a job. The impact on our society of having the, the daycare centers, the Green New Deal, the proper testing for the disease, the helping of the elderly, the things we need to do as a society anyway, having them be done right now, the de demonstration effect, the impact on the millions of families that such a daring program would achieve is unrivaled and is way better than anything I see coming at this point from the Biden administration. I think this is an opportunity terribly missed and one that I would urge. Secondly, yeah. Second. Professor Wolf, yeah. can you hold that thought? Because I actually uh, have uh, something to share with you and the audience in response to what you said, just to kind of juxtapose uh, the New Deal's uh, approach versus what we're getting from Joe Biden in his latest coronavirus relief proposal. In his proposal, he is offering to increase the number of federal jobs um, through his plan. But as you mentioned, you know, under the New Deal, we're talking about 12 million um, federal jobs. Under the Biden plan, he's proposing proposed about 100,000 federal jobs that would simply be tasked with uh, the vaccine distribution. Um, so I think that's an important you know, point to share with the audience and with you, uh, which I'm sure you already knew, uh, just to kind of juxtapose the differences between you know, uh, Roosevelt and, and Biden. Uh, but please continue. Yes. And, and of course, you know, on the other side of that coin, we're a much larger country by population. So if you adjust all the numbers, it should be greater even than what you had in the Great Depression, again, because we also have this terrible disease running rampant in our society. Here's the second one. Every poll I've, I've seen for years now indicates that the United States, the mass majority of our people, would like us to be a less unequal society than we now are. Uh, we have become more and more unequal back in the 1970s, we were, in general, less unequal than most of our European uh, allies. Today, we are much more unequal than most of our European allies. That's been a horrible change, in my judgment, for the economy, for the politics, and for everything else in our society. And the mass of the American people are in agreement on this. Here is a moment to do that, to get rid of the negative economic effects of having so much wealth in the hands of so few and so much economic difficulty in terms of stimulating demand over the long run, in terms of giving the mass of people enough job and income security that colleges can once again become important. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the number of people registering to go to school had until 2010 been greater than the growth of population. And since 2010, it stopped being greater as people no longer are getting the education, even as we tell each other rightly that the future of the United States economy in the world economy depends on that kind of education 
probably more than anything else. So this would be a, a step. And finally, if you did tax the wealthy, and I mean it in a way I'll describe in a moment, you would also quietly but effectively undercut this anxiety carefully stoked in the United States that if we do what Mr. Biden proposed in the way of relief, the $2 trillion, that it will bust the budget, it will increase the deficit, it will worsen the national debt. Good. By taxing the rich, you don't have to borrow anywhere near as much money to pay for hiring large numbers of people or to pay for relief. And here is what the left could do in a tax that would just exactly do what we are talking about. This has to do with property. Most taxes in our country are either taxes on income you earn or money you spend. You know, an income tax or a sales tax. But we do not tax property with one exception. The federal government does not tax the value of property. Income from it, but not the property. Neither do the states. Local governments, municipalities are the only level of government that tax property. But here comes the killer. They only tax land, homes, business industry uh, inventories, and um, automobiles and things like that. They don't tax property in the form of stocks and bonds. In other words, if you have a home worth $100,000 in this country, you will pay a property tax. Whether or not that home generates income for you, you pay an annual property tax on the value of that home or that car or that business inventory or whatever, the land. If you sell the $100,000 home and you use the money to buy $100,000 worth of stocks and bonds, you pay no property tax, neither to that municipality, nor to any state, nor to the federal government. In other words, the property tax is a total discriminatory tax that exempts from itself the richest people, because those are the only ones that hold a significant portion of their wealth in the form of stocks and bonds. There's no justification for that in ethics, in morality, in social justice, or for that matter, in any serious economics. It is a something gotten by the rich and held on to them. It would be popular to say that that should have never been done. It can be corrected now and it can fund all of the things we need to do now with much less of a damage to our deficits, if you're worried about it, than before. Programs like that can be put together and can be put forward if you're willing to break from the acceptance of the status quo as to what is and isn't doable. And that's what the left, if it was a real left, would be busy doing. I want to ask you about, about inequality and what you just talked about, about taxing the rich, because you see arguments from people like Steven Pink or whatever, that inequality doesn't matter, that as long as, you know, everyone is kind of going up, it doesn't matter if the super rich are getting absurdly rich. Um, and you see argument and you even see kind of um, these the people who adhere to MMT saying like, well, we can do all these social programs without taxing the rich. Um, so it's, it's, it's largely unnecessary. What, what do you respond to that? What is the pro why is it in reducing inequality, a day fact, like a, a good thing in and of itself? 
Um, and, 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 and why should we be taxing the rich rather than just kind of, you know, riding, rising tide, lifting all boats? Well, there's a number of ways to answer this question. First, I, I find it remarkable that folks like that breezily push aside. When I mentioned that the polls show what they do, the majority of the American people have indicated over and over again that they don't like and they don't want this level of inequality. So the, the, the statement, it doesn't matter, leads me to ask, to exactly whom does it not matter? And then I become very suspicious. Rich people, obviously, it matters to them that we all think it doesn't matter. And I'm suspicious that that's what's going on, even if the mouthpieces are my fellow uh, academics or journalists or, or stuff like that. So th that's my first one. Number two, I think it matters enormously to watch a society split apart in which some people, I will mention Jeffrey Bezos or Elon Musk, or people with literally hundreds of billions of personal wealth coexisting, prancing around in the mass media, on TV, in the newspaper, organizing their new rocket ships to explore space, while we have, I believe, the latest count, 30 to 40 million of our fellow citizens who are, in the euphemism of these days, food insecure, i.e. hungry. I don't think that has no effect. I think that has an enormous effect. I think this inequality means that a huge portion of the population are in the process of realizing every day that the so-called American dream they were led to believe they could get is out of reach for them, isn't available, hasn't been. All the young people that I deal with every day who have loaded up on debt on the assumption that they would get a job with an income that would allow them to pay off that debt and lead a decent life as they painfully discover that that's not true and that they're going to have to make adjustments they never dreamed were part of what they are about. I want to talk a little bit about the political implications. When you allow some people, 5%, 2% doesn't matter, to become wildly wealthy in a society where the mass of people are not at all comfortably off. You know what you do? You stimulate the politics we are now suffering from. That small number, ever shrinking, of super wealthy people, they understand very well that they are a small minority in a large sea of people without that wealth. And you know what that means? They understand, especially when you have universal suffrage in a society, as we do, with everybody have the vote, that sooner or later, people in the politics of the society will understand that the mass of people can use the vote to undo politically the inequality of a capitalist economic system. In other words, the minority recognizes that in capitalism, you may become very wealthy, but that wealth, by its very uniqueness, becomes a target. And so what do they do? They have to protect themselves. And how do they do that? They buy the political system. They make it dependent on what they have, 
money rather than on what it's supposed to depend on, the people's vote. And across the United States, left wing and right wing, the recognition of being excluded uh, politically is the result of that very inequality that does that to your politics. So I find it bizarre that people who seem to be upset about the consequences of inequality want somehow to deal with them without having to confront the inequality itself. Finally, on the MMT, I think if you're closely watching that movement, it is about issues of funding national debts and funding national expenditure. But to extend it to the notion, well, we can do whatever we want, it doesn't matter, misses the complexity. Things that happen at the government level, the amount of money in circulation, the rate of interest, uh, the level of debts or not debts, those things have many consequences in a society. And breezily imagining we are now not constrained, that's an illusion. And I don't think the best, Stephanie Kelton and the others who are working on that, they don't want to foster that. They want to make some points about conservative holding back, and they're right about that, that don't have to be operative. But then to go the whole hog the other way, no, that won't work. Inflations are real problems. They have beset economies in various ways, usually with great damages. You ought to be very careful about how those could be developed and be very skeptical on whether a government, even if it has the tools to stop an inflation, would have the political strength to apply those tools if and when an inflation uh, raises its head. I'm really I'm glad that you're touching on, you know, modern monetary theory, because I've been listening to so many different talks about it, trying to, you know, kind of figure out what my own opinion about it is as well. And I will say that whenever it comes to deficit spending uh, that helps to advantage people who are already in positions of power or privilege. Um, there's never any question about whether deficit spending makes sense. There's never any question about whether cutting taxes for corporations and the wealthy um, is a good or bad thing uh, when we're dealing with uh, a tremendous amount of deficit spending. Um, however, I, I do want to kind of uh, discuss what's the right way to go forward in not catering too much to, to people who are overly concerned about deficit spending, while also ensuring that we have robust economic policies uh, that address the fundamental uh, instability that the vast majority of Americans are facing right now. You mentioned uh, raising taxes in order to provide uh, federal jobs. I think that's a incredibly smart strategy. But what more can we do in terms of our framing of messaging um, and how we make our arguments uh, for what we need to get done? Well, let me give you a parallel that may answer your question. Uh, there was a time when economists were able to, to converse about the dangers of an inflation, for example, by pointing out that you can control an inflation by applying what is called wage and price controls. It's what Richard Nixon did in 1971. He imposed a wage price control freeze, I believe he called it, uh, in order to deal with a scary rise of inflation at that time, having to do with the 
funding of the Vietnam War by massive borrowing, etc. The answer to that is not to quarrel with the mathematics of it. That's right. If you flood the economy with money and at the same time you impose a wage price freeze where you say to the community, if you raise a price or a wage, we will arrest you and put you in jail, you will stop the inflation. That is correct. However, in a capitalist system of competition, which continues, what the competing enterprises can't do by raising prices or lowering them, they will find another way to do. You better be very careful. Have you got in place the measures of what else they will do? Do you have tools to control that? And then when you figure that out, you become suddenly aware that the only way to really make a wage price freeze work without all the other distortions that it can provoke is if the government comes in and regulates more and more and then that itself becomes the problem. The same applies to MMT. You come in and you start printing all that money telling yourself, well, it's our currency and we can pull it out of the economy. Yeah, sure you can, but will you? Well, who will you pull it from exactly? How will they react exactly when they think you might pull it or you do pull it? What avenues will they discover in the United States, out of the United States, legal, illegal? This is an open-ended dilemma that has always affected people who come up with a policy that, yes, it will work so long as you don't ask the awkward questions about how such a policy will ramify and what other problems uh, it will bring up. Yeah. One of the things that was in Biden's proposal was an increase to of the minimum wage to $15 um, at the federal level. Um, and what that what that brought about was the usual suspects coming out and saying things like, oh, if you increase the minimum wage, you're going to reduce the amount of jobs available and blah, blah, blah. Um, what's your response to, to people who are against increasing the minimum wage? Sure. You know, this is very old. The, the, these ideas of minimum wage have been with us ever since it was first proposed um, back in the 1930s when we had the first time, uh, again, under the New Deal of a minimum wage passed at the federal level. Um, here's my response. It is grotesque. I, I, I can't be polite. <laughs> I really can't be polite. It's hard. I'll, I'll be as polite as I know don't, how. Don't be polite. <laughs> don't be polite. Be yourself. This is special pleading. This is the effort of people who don't want to see wages go up because it eats into their profits. There really isn't much more going on. And it isn't just the businesses that pay the minimum wage. It's all businesses because many wages are pegged to the minimum wage. In other words, certain kinds of jobs advertise, we pay 20% above the minimum or 30% or workers choose jobs that they believe have such a rule governing them. So if you raise the minimum wage, yes, you put upward pressure on all wages. And capitalism is nothing if it isn't a system that opposes at every turn the raising of wages, and it always has. The only thing uglier than holding back 
the rising, the raising of wages until you're forced to by, by pressure from below is the activity engaged in by my academic colleagues who respond to rising wages when they occur by shifting the argument and suddenly it's capitalism that has delivered a rising wage. It becomes an argument in favor of capitalism only if you keep out of the story the fact that the wages rose despite capitalism, not because of it, against the opposition of capitalists, as you're seeing right now. They don't want the minimum wage to go up. Now with the argument itself. First, let's give it its due. It has its grain of salt, as arguments usually do. If a wage goes up by government action, will there be some employers who decide to fire workers rather than pay them the higher minimum wage? My answer is, my suspicion is, probably are some really low-paying work. Because let's be honest with each other. The current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. If you are an employer in America paying less than that, we're talking about the bottom of the economic barrel. But are there a few who will fire their workers? Yes, there probably are. But any honest economist knows that while you look at that as a negative, you ask the question, what are the positives? Well, let's see. If the minimum wage goes up and many workers are now paid a higher minimum wage and many other workers enjoy a wage increase because their wage is pegged to the minimum wage, then we're going to see a general increase in the level of disposable income that the working class as a whole has to spend. And as they spend that extra money, guess what? It generates more jobs. So the honest economic analysis has to weigh whatever jobs are lost from those low-income employers who won't pay the higher wage versus all the jobs created by the greater purchasing power of those who get a higher wage. And then there are the interesting arguments. What are the secondary effects of rising wages all along the, the line? And the answer is not just that they buy more creating jobs, but people will now be rich enough with a higher wage that they might think about going to college in a way they couldn't afford before, buying books that they couldn't afford before. In other words, you have the whole question of what it means to have a working class with a higher standard of living, which will do all kinds of things, changing the dietary habits, changing the health needs. And are those not important since they affect millions and millions of people? They shape the society. One of the reasons, and let me drive it home with a little harshness, one of the reasons this society has been so traumatically impacted by COVID-19 is that we're obese, we're not healthy, we don't have the disposable income for millions to go and buy in the organic section of the supermarket. They're stuck 
with the pesticide-ridden normal produce, etc., etc. This is these are very powerful um, phenomena in a, any society. All of them are affected by the level of wages that you have. Only a capitalist thinks that the wage is a threat to him or her as a profit-dependent entity. And they're right about it. But for the rest of us, it's a wholly different calculus. You know, the fact that the Federal Reserve can just pump money into banks and corporations and essentially ensure that the stock market is completely disconnected uh, from the economics of supply and demand um, makes me wonder how persuasive that argument is to people in positions of power right now, because they've essentially created a system that is, of course, reliant on exploiting labor, uh, but certainly not reliant on consumer spending, not to the same extent as before. Um, so how do you respond to that concern? No, I think you're touching on something that is a whole nother crucial you know, part of this story. The United States, the capitalists of the United States have done something that nobody wants to talk about except on an occasional uh, talk show and then often from the right wing. And again, let me be stark in the interest of getting the idea across and uh, taking advantage of your kind offer that I don't need to be quite so polite. Um, <laughs> I, let me put it bluntly. I think large portions of the American capitalist class have abandoned the United States. They don't need the United States. They have the rest of the world to play in, and it's a more profitable place to play. It's not only that since the 1970s we have seen, and it continues, a massive exodus of jobs that once would have been developed in the United States or already were, and that got moved or initiated in China or India or Brazil or many other places. It's not just that. That's going on. But that very movement has two very powerful effects that make for a snowball. On the one hand, it diminishes the wages in this country. That's why we've had stagnant real wages in this country basically for the last 30 to 40 years. But it also means as you move the jobs over there, that wages go up over there that millions and millions uh, of people are brought into a modern wage-earning economy, capitalist economy, and they therefore become consumers. The greatest growing consumer market in the world today is China. It's not just a place people go to work, to, to hire workers, but it's now a place to sell. General Motors sells more cars in China than it does here. And believe me, they know where their bread is buttered. They don't need the United States. They need the rest of the world. That's where the growth is. Here, the direction is going the other way. And if you don't raise minimum wages, it will go the other way even more. And I think these are phenomena that are shaking this economy at its foundation. And you have to deal with that instead of pretending that somehow these things are manageable. They aren't. We are not in the position in the United States to manage the world economy. That was a terrible short-lived situation after World War II. It's been over for a while, and we're living uh, on the remembrance 
of it, but not on the reality because the reality has left us behind. Mm. And very quickly, Professor, just to wrap up um, at the end here, uh, what do you think the left position towards the Biden administration should be? Should should we be taking a sort of hard oppositional uh, pose or maybe some softer, conciliar, conci- more conciliatory, conciliatory pose? Okay, I know this is a hard question, but I'm going to, again, assume that you're interested in an honest answer. Yes, sir. I, I have no objection, and I support particularly the progressive voices, Bernie, AOC, and the others working inside the Democratic Party. That's fine with me. But I believe that they would have a better time if there were an organized political movement, formation, party, it really doesn't matter to me, to the left of them, able and willing to say the kinds of things they can't for reasons good and bad. That's typical. Let us work side by side. We push further, those of us are on the outside, they push as best they can on the inside. If we go on those two tracks, we will be able to reach a larger audience than either of us could by ourselves. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning. We have to organize the components of the left, bring them together to help each other, and to deal with the reality that they are stronger together than they could be by themselves. I want to advocate for a government jobs program. I understand if the structure of the Democratic Party makes that difficult or impossible for Bernie or for AOC or for the others like that. I accept that. They will be upset occasionally by how far we go. We will be upset by how far they don't go. But we will understand that both of those messages have to be out there. And then let's see where the population decides to go as they listen to that version over there and the hours over here. If we don't have both of them, then they get only one version. And I don't think that's good for either of us. I think the progressives inside the Democratic Party will learn that for every time they're embarrassed by what we to their left do, they will also be strengthened by being able to go into the party's activities and say, hey, you better do what we're suggesting because coming down the road behind us is something you will like even less. And those moments have happened in many other societies. You know, in, in in every European country, they are not satisfied with two parties. They have more, three, six, nine. You know, they haven't fallen apart. They don't dissolve. They are less riven by divisions than we are as a nation. Yet we hold on to a two-party monopoly. We have an antitrust division to get rid of monopolies in business. But we seem to think that they're necessary, normal, acceptable in our politics. They aren't. They never were. And we should be as opposed to monopolization in our politics just as we have been in our economics. Mm. Wow. Uh, Professor Richard Wolf, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I wish we had more time uh, to speak with you, but hopefully you'll come back on again soon. Thank you, as always, for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. It's crucial at this time, perhaps more than ever before in American history. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Take care. Bye bye.
Oh, I love I that changed, guy. <laughs> I love shirt. that guy so much. <laughs> oh, Wolf is the Wolf is the best. He's the best. I love He's the him. Man. I could talk to him all day. Like I could just be like, "So, what do you think about this?" And then just see what he thinks about that. And then be like, oh, "What about this?" And then just think about see what he says about that. Totally, and, totally. Yeah. It, it, yeah. The best is just. I mean, you don't want to interrupt him. Like you, he gives long answers, but I love it because he ties everything to a historical context that makes it easier to understand where he's coming from, or more importantly, to provide evidence for why he's right. <laughs> you know, so I always really enjoy that. Um, and also, I just wish, since we did a pre-tape interview with him this week, um, you know, Nando and I obviously have both, um, we both have other commitments, um, and so we both had to go, but I had so many more questions I wanted to ask him. So we'll get um, Professor Wolf back on um, and, yeah. and discuss strategy more with him, because I think it's really, really important. Um, but yeah, that was great. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts about the interview before we move on to our SALT segment? Well, no, I mean, one of the things I admire about guys like Wolf and Chomsky is that they have their worldviews. They have their kind of ideological worldviews and they're pretty disciplined about, about them. I mean, they, they're, they're probably slightly different in their ideological worldviews, uh, but they, but they maintain a discipline, like a message discipline, like, which is why they're timeless. If you're kind of constantly chasing the discourse, you're going to drive yourself crazy. But if you can mm -hmm. absorb the discourse and tie it to a coherent, ideological worldview with historical perspective, then you will become timeless in your analysis, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah, and you'll become definitely. much more coherent in your analysis. So that's something that I try to do as much as I can. Um, I fail, obviously, like everyone else, but um, that's what I try to do as much as I can. But um, guys like Wolf and Chomsky are, are, are people that I look up to in that sense, in that they are very disciplined, about and Bernie Sanders for that matter is as well. I mean, he gets made fun of like he just always ties it back to the millionaires and the billionaires. Okay, well that's that's just that's discipline and that's and that's why right. um, these people's message endures over time. Whereas kind of people who are just kind of like bah, 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 they'll be forgotten by history. Definitely, definitely. Um, all right, so just another reminder for all of you that we will take a few Super Chat questions um, after our SALT segment. So um, if you're waiting to put your Super Chat question in there or your comment, um, you know, don't, don't wait. Uh, do it now. And uh, <laughs> do it while we're doing this uh, SALT segment, which I found enjoyable because the SALT segment is kind of about us. <laughs> it's about <laughs> Jacobin and people who... Uh, you know, don't understand satire, even though they claim they're experts in satire. So let me go ahead and present this to you guys. So Jacobin's latest issue is out. If you're not subscribed to the magazine, you should be subscribed to the magazine because it's fantastic. Um, so if you look at the cover art that was done, um, and if you also understand the content of Jacobin, both in the magazine and on the channel, uh, you know that this is not meant to be serious. No one, I, I don't think anyone at Jacobin sees Joe Biden as some sort of savior. Um, and it's poking fun. My interpretation of it is it's poking fun at the way, honestly, liberals see Joe Biden. 
they see him as the savior. And and you look at the image. I think it's just so well done. You look at the image and it touches on so many um, political <laughs> issues that have yeah. unfortunately dominated our lives, especially over the last yeah. year. And so I, th- it's just, again, fantastic. I'm, I want to give credit to the artist and I apologize if I'm butchering her name, Masha uh, Krasnova Shabeva. And if, uh, Kale, Kale wants to jump in. Kale, <laughs> Kale the the uh, pronunciation Nazi, come in. You think I can do this? I have okay, the okay. worst pronunciations on the show. <laughs> okay. okay, fair yeah. enough, fair enough. But she I did feel a great less job. bad. <laughs> she did do a great job. Um, so I wanted to give her credit. Now we we understand. Yeah. We all understand that this is meant to be satire. But one person who had a difficult time seeing it was Tim Pool. So let's hear what he had to say. Because Jacobin is like socialist. Like their their DSA, many are there's like communism. It's it, they get their name from the French Revolution, and they've put a cover out, and it's Joe Biden as Jesus with the sun behind his head, literally imagery of Jesus, and there are people below him like looking up and cheering and worshiping him, huh. it, and there's angels filming and interviewing him. What are these people thinking? But when you have a media ecosystem that is acting like Joe Biden is literally Jesus then I don't see how we, we actually solve problems. Because, well, well, the, my point, my, just to clarify my point, Joe Biden could do really horrible things, and they don't care. It's, it, but it's funny because they say the same thing about you know Donald Trump. Yeah. This is people worshiping Jesus Biden, who hasn't done anything. What, is he, what did he do? He, he defeated the, the devil. Up against the wall yeah, he and, defeated yeah, the devil. There you go. Yeah. The evil Trump. Yeah. First of all, Jacobin does not take its name from the French Revolution. It takes its name, at least as far as I understand, it's from the Black Jacobins from the Haitian Revolution, which some may say is an extension of the French Revolution. But but uh, that's a common misconception. And Bosker can, can can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm correct. I mean, it, I mean, a lot of the magazine is playing up, uh, you know, the the French Revolution. But yes, the like the logo comes from the the Black Jacobins. Uh, and that's shout out to Ramike, our our lead designer. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's just kind of we're riding with Biden on Jacobin. Everyone knows that we're riding with Biden. We're on the choo choo the no malarkey express. Let's go, baby. We love him. Just take a second. Like that's the thing. I mean, maybe it's difficult for me to see it because I work here and I know what the content is about. I know what the pieces criticize, like, but like before you release a video with your strong statements, like just maybe like, don't even, you don't have to read the articles. If I know Tim pool doesn't like to read, but he doesn't even have to read, like just go to the front page of Jacobin and read the headlines. You get a little taste of the framing, right? Just Try just try to put in a little effort, um, a little bit of research before you, uh, you know, take this cover it, and discuss it in earnest. It's just embarrassing. Like he's 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 so embarrassing. One of Jacobin's most prolific writers, and I think just one of the, I think one of the best, one of the best people. I read almost everything he writes is Branko Marcetic, and he way before. I mean, way before it was clear that Biden was going to even win the Democratic primary, which I think no one really, I mean, there was a time when no one, it was conventional wisdom that he was not going to win it. I mean, maybe it wasn't going to be Bernie, but it wasn't going to be Biden either because he was really struggling. 
Bronco put out a book called Yesterday's Man about Joe Biden. He wrote a whole friggin' book about no. Joe Biden and how bad no. he has always been and how he's always been one of the worst Democrats, um, which is saying something. Just and, a book, uh, but so, it's, yeah. probably, it's probably the best researched book on Joe Biden. Like, yeah, it ever. Just, half that book is footnotes because it's like... Bronco spent He's months and months and months, yeah, digging yeah. through this guy's legacy. Like, it's it's an incredible book that people should read, especially now that he's president. I mean, he, it's, he, it's he so owned funny. us all. He owned yeah. everyone, Bronco. Uh, he owned us all. He saw it coming. He wrote a whole friggin' book because he because well, he knew that it was going to be important to look at Biden. It's uh, funny critically. It's funny because the book came out in February of 2020, and it right. was like. Shit, I guess I guess no one's gonna buy this book. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess I guess Biden's over, and a month later, completely different world, which I don't want to think about. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I also I wanted to pull up the the issue cover because yeah. okay, like... <laughs> I'm Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer kneeling. That's me. Tag yourself. Tag, tag yourself. yourself. Who, who are you? What's your favorite part? Um, I think well, the Kente like... claw. Yeah, I like the like, Fauci I... part. Just because, yeah, like, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I, like, I don't mean to demonize Fauci in any way, and I don't think that anything happened through malice or ill intent. But, like, for for a guy that everyone keeps pointing to, to like, you know, really emphasize and drive home the point that we need to listen to the science, follow the science. The messaging from Fauci in the beginning of the pandemic was, at best, unclear at worst, misleading, right? Like he was one of the people who was discouraging people from wearing masks. Um, And I think that that might've been intentional because there was a shortage of masks and they wanted to make sure that like regular consumers didn't like snatch them all up before healthcare workers can, you know, get uh, get masks uh, for work they do. Uh, But at the same time, like in the very, very beginning, like in January, he wasn't minimizing it, but he did make it seem as though coronavirus was similar to Ebola in that like it's it's unlikely to you know hit our shores it's unlikely to have um, a devastating impact on America and obviously it's had a devastating impact on America look my point is like it's pretty clear it's clear to anyone who knows anything like just if you if you're in media especially you look at this and you can tell it's satire because it points to so many failures that we've experienced um, throughout 2020, especially, you know, and, well, and when it comes to lawmakers that are featured on it. Yeah. The lawmakers think like all of our problems are wrapped up in this uh, neat little Trump package. And all we need to do is kick that package out the door and bring in another one of us. And we're going to be fine. Like we all know that's a ridiculous argument. We all know that Trump was not the problem itself. Trump was a system, a, a symptom of the problem. And I'm I'm making serious comments about a story involving Tim right. Pool being well. That's like, the thing, like the, the 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 the. So Anthony Fauci, I'm sure, is like a, just a fine civil servant, whatever. He's you know, um, but the the sort of left critique of that is that the liberals kind of turn him into this like a savior celebrity <laughs> guy who like I just want Anthony Fauci to tie me up in rope and hang me upside down and pound away at me you know and it's like <laughs> what he's just he's just like a you know he's just a, like a doctor guy I don't know like he's just some guy he's just some civil servant yeah. who should be doing his job and he's we should be kind of 
I don't know. Like, it's just like the 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 need for a certain kind of liberal to ascribe certain celebrity characteristics to our political leaders is just something very that's just very strange and very bizarre. It Especially became, because they haven't, yeah, yeah, they, have, they, haven't, they haven't done anything to earn it. Well, he became a part of like this reality show narrative that politics has turned yeah. into, right? Um, it, it, Trump is the evildoer and, and oh, it looks like he's directing his ire toward this uh, important, you know, public servant, Anthony Fauci, who's trying to keep us safe. And so it turned into actually a lot of what we're seeing in politics, right? And a lot of what we're seeing in, you know, independent media these days as well. And I guess corporate media, just like this, effort to turn politics into either a blood sport or into some sort of entertaining reality show. But at the heart of it are people who desperately need real solutions because they're suffering, right? So um, yeah, it's just Anthony Fauci is, he's doing a fine job, but to um, put him on a pedestal or put anyone in, in government on a pedestal as like, the one person who's going to like save us and, and get us out of this disastrous situation we're experiencing with the pandemic is ridiculous. And that's what the commentary in response to Fauci has been like since the beginning of the pandemic. Right. Well, yeah. and the other thing is that everything on the cover is like, it's, it's showing off how, you know, it's some critique of them, right. Where it's like Cuomo putting uh, COVID vials in the trash, <laughs> in the trash. <laughs> or like, yeah. uh, <laughs> Or like these like white libs, perfect, white yeah, fragility. Just, that's a that's a well, that's just a, like a where's Waldo. Yeah, you should have put girl boss put on the Waldo left. in the in there somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the PMC reading white fragility um, while singing Kumbaya, presumably or something like that's like yeah. a. Is that what that is? Yeah. Um, what else we got there? What else we got? Yeah, of the of uh, Schumer and Pelosi taking a knee, the the baby yeah. blue drones overhead. The tweets, the Twitter, folks, uh, the tweets. Twitter birds. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I mean, this is shameless. It reminds me of Inauguration Day, to be honest. Inauguration right. Day was, I had CNN on in the background all day, like as I was working, um, just to see if like something worthwhile was going to come up that maybe we'd want to cover on TYT. And it was embarrassing. It was it, <laughs> just relax, guys. Everyone yeah, relax. The coverage. Yeah. The coverage was well, super like embarrassing and, 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 and very kind of discon like I don't know, like there like there were people on CNN who were like, This is the greatest moment in the history of American democracy. He's not exactly maybe in the history of yeah, maybe no, in the history of mankind. This is the greatest moment in the history of mankind. And I'm like, this is a pretty grim spectacle on a lot of levels. I mean, there's just no yeah. crowd there. There's they're surrounded by twenty thousand National Guard troops, hundreds of whom have just tested positive for COVID <laughs> as a result. Um, and, you know, like in the backdrop of like hundreds of thousands of Americans dying, it's, this is not uh, this is this is like a very grim skeptic spectacle with like a very saccharine kind of layer on top of it, you know, just like this. And 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 to see all these media people react in, in such a hyperbolic way. It just like was totally, it was like an out of body. I don't know. Like it was just very mentally difficult for me. And it's especially interesting coming from corporate media types, you know, like hosts on CNN who have incredibly, you know, 
lucrative uh, jobs have some of them make millions a year in their contracts. Like for them to have that hyperbolic reaction as if the Trump presidency impacted them in the way that it impacted like an average American is 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 what really stands out to me. Right. So and, and by the way, again, Trump is Trump made them uncomfortable, I think, like Trump, you know, it's, made it, them fearful well, of loot. Go ahead. No, he did. He did like offend something in them, but he was also like the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. You know, like CNN has made more money in the Trump era than they ever have in the history of their company. Um, It's been it's been and, and these hosts, these like incredibly banal people like Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo, like my God, like were able to turn themselves into these like brave defenders of some, you know, the hordes coming through the gate, you know, and, and they're just, and so they, in a way, like the Trump era is the best thing that's ever, ever, ever happened to them because they could do this pose that is just completely fake. I mean, it's just so obviously fake, but tons of people ate it up. Um, and they themselves, I think, ate it up. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. bought their own narrative as these kind of like very brave people doing something that's like, it was the cushiest thing you could ever imagine. Like it's the cushiest job. It's not even like within journalism, like it's the least, the least scary thing you could do is like, be like, you know what, sir, you know, Daniel Dale, going out. it was just a, it was just a tsunami of lies, like thousands of you lies. lies per that. second. I, it just drives me crazy because it's like, it's like the, it's the bare, the easiest and and cushiest job. I'm not saying what I do is brave. I just don't. I don't claim. I don't claim it. I don't. I, mean, I don't I've, see, I've said that see myself as brave, that. Mando. For what it's worth, I think you're pretty Thank brave you. coming on the show every week. I mean, I there's just there's like severe cognitive dissonance. So there must be where like these people are making so much money off of something that they find so like the the antithesis of what they think politics is. Where like. Trump totally smashed the decorum of it, like smashed like the actual like glitz and glam that they love to cover, like, and mm-hmm. it just became extremely vulgar. And they're like, "This is not yeah. what politics is supposed to be about." <laughs> like, it was. That's it a was good like, way of putting it. Yeah, one of the most like, embarrassing things. Ton of money. One of the most embarrassing things I've ever done is when I attended the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and I think oh I'm God. convinced that that was like the greatest. I, I I was like looking around the room, and I remember thinking like this is the greatest day of their lives. Like these people, like they love this shit. They love Obama going up there, telling the jokes, Conan O'Brien going up there, telling the jokes. And then they get to hang out. Like they're at the table. It's like, Ooh, I'm, you know, Jim Acosta at CNN, but I'm sitting at a table with, uh, you know, uh, some celebrity, you know, Tom Cruise. Oh, that's so cool. You know, and Tom Cruise is like, oh my God, I'm with Jim Acosta, the CNN guy, the guy who likes, you know, he does all this stuff on CNN. And, and it's like, I remember being there, like, and just thinking like, this is the great, and Trump blew that up. And, mm-hmm. you know, like that, he blew that up, like that they didn't do it um, uh, in, during the Trump. Yeah, didn't years. they skip it one year? Or, they, like, or maybe they skipped it and they know. did like a side Trump one. Or like they blew up the, yeah. it stopped the, the, the thing that it had become. Um, you're right so yeah that, and they love the pomp them. and circumstance right they, they love, love that love and like the with all, and, and that was one other thing i noticed about um biden's inauguration it was the return of the celebrity culture 
you know, the marriage of Lady Gaga types with the executive branch. It was just, it's, I don't, I don't care. I don't. It's yeah, thinking of celebs, and we're gonna the get more of that. Trump that's, world. that's a frustrating thing. We're gonna get more of these like annoying celebrity endorsed events and you know uh, campaigns and these. Anyway, these people are not reflective or representative of what people experience in this country every day, right? Like just putting a happy kind of entertaining. I don't even find these people entertaining, but I guess to some people, entertaining face on. Um, a government that has neglected its people and continues to fail them um, because they would rather, you know, uh, appeal to their donors or their own personal interests rather than actually represent the best interests of the people. Like that's a, that's a huge problem. There's no amount of Lady Gaga or I don't know. Let me try to think of a singer that I actually like. Like, I, I don't I can think of one right now. Like there's nothing that's going to erase what the reality of this country is right now. And and I'm worried that the Biden administration is going to fall into that like super annoying Obama era entertainment culture. You didn't think it was cool when Garth Brooks gave former President oh Obama like a really cool bro hug? <laughs> but that's the thing. Yeah. Like they haven't just, even updated I, the entertainer. I, like, I was laughing throughout the Garth Brooks thing because um, – well, first of all, it was just like such a throwback. I had forgotten like he existed. He was so big in the '90s; like it's hard to overstate like how big he was. Uh, but I just, I just like imagined myself like all these like uh, you know like all these like conservative people who are like fans of Greg. It's like, well, I guess he's a pedophile now. Like, scratch him off the, you know, like scratch him off the list. <laughs> I guess he's part of the cabal, oh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Um, well, let's let's get to some of our super chat questions because we're we're going long, and uh, I want to make sure we answer some of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah we should. Um, so we've gotten this a couple times <laughs> throughout the show already. Someone really wants an answer to this, Nando, and you owe them one. Okay. Um, Which one? Uh, real life joy, Jolly. Excuse me. Real life Jolly in the chat is asking. Um, I loved how last week you said Les Miserables uh, was the best novel ever. So, who is your favorite character in it? Ooh, uh, I, I didn't even—I don't even remember I said that. But now that I'm asked, uh, well, uh, so the, the—I mean, Les Miserables is incredible. Like, I think I, I recommend everyone should read the the book. But there's a at the beginning of the book, there's a character who is like an a old hermit who is a is a dying revolutionary. He was a revolution like he participated in the Revolutionary War. Uh, in the revolution in in, in France's uh, in the French Revolution, sorry, and he's like old and dying, and um, the bishop who later kind of saves Jean Valjean um, comes to visit him to give him his last rites, and the bishop is this incredibly moral man, like incredibly pious, um, like never did a bad thing in his life, uh, just doesn't have any vices in any way. He's like a perfect kind of moral creature, but he's like a political conservative and was horrified by the French Revolution. The hermit, the old dying revolutionary, is not a moral man. He, you know, I don't remember if he was like a philanderer and he was like, you know, he was a, you know, drank and did all, he was a bad boy, but he was a revolutionary. And so they have like a debate over like the ethics of like revolution and uh, political violence and things like that as this man is dying. Um, And it's just like, it's just like so well done, so well written, and and just like that character, I just always found like to be such an interesting 
Um, anyway, I loved it. And so I recommend anyone read that. That was Nando's uh, Les Miserables Corner. We'll be doing this every week now. Um, I'm down with the musical um, as well. And I even liked the movie. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I thought the movie was really good, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, real quick, this isn't a question. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Erica. Like, I know, I know you don't like me, girl, but I just want to say thank you for watching the show anyway from the chat. Um, I went on there briefly during the pre-recorded interview. Um, but I, I appreciate that she tunes in every week. I'm, I'm being very sincere and watches anyway. Um, so just shout out to her and, uh, I don't take it personally. (laughs) We, uh, a diverse audience of, we do, and that's that's a good thing. We want, yeah. you know, we want to have a diverse audience um, ideologically to want to suck you guys in, you know, want to make sure you guys are uh, uh, indoctrinated by us. <laughs> she said she was trolling too hard right now. That was her. So she takes back. Oh, so she hard, said. motherfuckers want to find me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. Don't worry, I'm not offended. I'm really not. Like I, I, I personally have a hard time watching content when I I don't like the hosts um and i find them grading so i don't know if she finds me grading doesn't matter but like i like that people tune in despite that um so uh, mm-hmm. i always appreciate seeing her in the comment section every every week mm-hmm. uh so here's a question um i think it flows nicely out of the interview that we had with wolf uh which again always appreciate richard wolf joining us and hopefully we'll have him again in the future um maureen b was asking Interested to know how all three of you feel about the third party concept. Um, it's a little bit of an open ended question, but, uh, and we've answered variants of this in the past, but now in the Biden era, uh, how are we feeling about third parties? I mean, I've said this before in the past. I, I, I recommend everyone look up Jacobin, Seth Ackerman, Blueprint, Blueprint for a New Party. It kind of, it, it has the, it has the, to me the definitive position on, this kind of eternal question, which is that third parties, unless there's like some sort of very seismic political collapse, um, like a third party in the United States system for various reasons that have been discussed a million times, like have very little chance of ever gaining mass appeal. It's, it's, there's been like little inklings of it in the past. There's been kind of here and there, um, you know, like the populist party and all that stuff, but they, they end up really getting absorbed by the, one of the two major parties. They end up like having influence on the two major on one of the two major parties, but they end up they don't become the party in and of itself. It just hasn't happened in like 150 years. So we have to look at that. And then what he what he suggests is you have to, on the one hand, run on Democratic Party lines to use just just to get in like on the um, the actual kind of ballot in the ballot in in a way that can ensure mass uh, voting. But you have to also at the same time build up independent institutions that pose in opposition to that party. So broadly speaking, just if someone like this, this sounds too theoretical, it's what Bernie has done his entire career. You know, that's that's Bernie's. Mm -hmm. That's that's what Bernie has done. He he called himself an independent. He did not call himself a Democrat, but he caucused with the Democrats. And then when he ran for president, he ran on the Democratic Party line. And he had built up the credibility because of his constant opposition to the Democratic Party. Like no one could accuse him of being some like neoliberal sellout or whatever. Uh, But he ran for president on the Democratic Party line and then was able to gain a mass constituency as a result. Had he run as a third party, he would have been another Ralph Nader, you know, who 
people forget Ralph Nader was an unbelievably popular political figure in the 1970s. I mean, people forget people weren't born. Most of the people watching this show, I'm guessing. But Ralph Nader was a legitimate political force in the 1970s, very popular and very powerful. By the time he ran for president in 2000 on the Green Party ticket, negligible support. Um, so um, I think that that's the that's the that's the real answer is that you have to you have to define clear opposition to the Democratic Party. But in the sort of electoral field, I guess you, you run on the Democratic Party line. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. And I largely agree with you. In fact, we interviewed Ackerman um, on that piece. Uh, so definitely read his piece because it was r- very well done and detailed. Um, and then watch our talk with him um, to give you more, you know, to elaborate more on what he wrote about. Right. I would just I would just add, and hopefully I'll be brief, that uh, it's it's a structural obstacle that we're coming up against, not like because what history has shown us is that largely uh, the left does, in fact, do better when it has its own party, when it has a labor party or a socialist party. Uh, and I would, in fact, want our own party. Uh, but the the real kind of question is the transition to getting there. How, what do you have to do to get to that point? And the American electoral system poses very specific challenges that uh, again, people like Ackerman or others like Questella and Abbott uh, and a number of other people in kind of the Jacobin orbit have really been trying to figure out, uh, you know, what are our more immediate means of actually building some kind of uh, working class party or. Um, and the other thing is that I don't think so. All that being said, I, I don't think we say we want uh, a party because we want a party, because it's a good in and of itself, it's a means to an end. So we think that yeah. uh, a labor party or a socialist party is useful because uh, it will enable uh, working people to have seats in parliament, in Congress, in this country, uh, to push for our politics. And we can we can have a party that is not structurally tied to, uh, to donors, to, um, to capital in and of itself, of course, the government itself has certain structural obligations to capital. That's an entirely other thing. But the point being is that, like, we should, uh, we prioritize things like guaranteeing health care to everyone or, uh, uh, you know, higher education, child care, uh, you know, massive public works uh, with a federally, uh, a federal jobs guarantee that we put people to work doing meaningful work uh, with uh, a good wage and uh, labor protections. And so like all of that. And then of course, like kind of the, you know, at the top of all this is, you know, workers should, because workers run the economy, they should, uh, or because they were the ones working, we should be the ones running everything so that, you know, worker controlled firms, all of this. So like, those are the goals. And then we say like, is, can we achieve that within our electoral system? And by what means do we go about doing that? And so like the, the unions in the 30s uh, ended up uh, moving into the Democratic Party uh, and were, in fact, able to get some pretty significant reforms through the Roosevelt administration. Um, and then they decided not to uh, form a labor party. And there's a lot of reasons for why that happens when it happens or doesn't happen when it doesn't happen. But the point is, is that we have a very particular history that we have to work within. Um, but we do know, in fact, that like, 
if we are successful enough to have some kind of, kind of, um, I'm trying to think, I have an analogy that I've been using that I really should stop using, but like, it's actually not very helpful where I'm like, the democratic socialist should be like a tumor within the democratic party because it's like inside attached to it and openly antagonistic to it. Um, yeah. but it's not, it's not a great analogy and I'm sorry I'm thinking out loud because like a tumor kind of implies that like it's trying to kill the host and we may or may not be wanting to kill the democratic party. Maybe we want to take it over and maybe we want our own party. I don't know. But, um, but the point being is that like the politics and the program is what we're fighting for. And, uh, and we fight for a labor party or a socialist party because we want those things. Um, and, and I think the, the, the only way that I see as like going down that path in this country is through what Nando was outlining, what, again, these authors I've mentioned have outlined, which is that you kind of have to have a surrogate within the Democratic Party that uh, basically proves to unions and to the labor movement that we're going to be uh, greater fighters and legitimate fighters for their interests in marrying socialist politics with labor politics uh, and bas- basically kicking out uh, one of the other two parties ballot by ballot, state by state, ultimately getting to the federal level. So the whole, like, there's a, there's a thing, the People's Party, whatever, that there's it keeps yeah. coming up. I'm not necessarily against it by any means. I think just the challenge that we have to figure out is attaching our organizing, socialist politics and grassroots organizing with organized labor. Uh, and part of the challenge is, of course, that Organized labor is historically weak right now, so it's also rebuilding labor mm-hmm. in the process. But there will be no socialist or labor party or, or viable third party unless it is attached to uh, a working class labor movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's, that's what it always comes back to. So, I mean, again, like all these things are very theoretical until the rubber hits the road. Oh, we got a comment. <laughs> 50 bucks from Erica. <laughs> wow. Thank, thank you, Erica. Oh my God. You didn't shame have to do is that. Powerful, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to shame her though. I was being sincere because like she had some negative feedback, but it wasn't like, it really wasn't that offensive. Like I deal with rape threats every day. <laughs> like it wasn't bad. Um, but I was like grateful that she still watches because sometimes hosts can turn people off. Um, so anyway, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, we're like a half hour past uh on my end 2 p.m you guys okay 12 p.m you guys because yeah it's 12 35 so maybe let's call it there um but i also just want to say thank you to everyone who did submit super chats you were all very generous um people asking what they can do to support the teamsters i don't know if i can legally tell you what to do but there are means so i don't know maybe if that's something you're interested in hit up the ts Hit up the DSA. I mean, obviously, people were reaching out to the DSA to see like what they could do to to, to support the striking workers at Hunts Point. Um, so, yeah, look, organizations like the DSA are important because it's a way to help efforts to organize, right? So, um, I would I would say look for. I, can we promote that? I don't even know what we're allowed to promote and not promote. But um, look at the anyway. DSA's Twitter feed. <laughs> good point good point perfect Look at some, the of the D- yeah. some of the fire tweets on the dsa twitter feed yeah um all right well thank you guys and thanks audience we love you 
uh, I'm gonna, you're, you're very special. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna let them. Very special that. people. <laughs> very right. lovely. Cal, well, Cal, very beautiful um, man. Very young man. Very, very, <laughs> very young. Very beautiful. Oh, those, po- those boyish charms. Anyway, yeah. um, Anyway, we do love you guys. Thank you so much for watching. Um, missed you last week. Uh, so I'm really happy that I was able to come back and, and do the show this week. Um, and Nando, you're the best. I love doing the show with you. Um, I always feel good after the show. Like I have Thank good you. feelings, you know? I feel... Yeah. I feel proud of what we're doing here and um, thank you to everyone who's supporting what we're trying to do. And we're going to continue fighting as hard as we can, um, you know, to uplift voices uh, for people who are out there doing the work uh, because the work is important. So love you guys. Have a fantastic weekend. Uh, Have an awesome week and we'll see you next Saturday.